ever imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we're all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it, welcome to it, welcome to it. At tonight, and coming up tonight is Mr. Tim Quirk. But before that... I'd like to give you a hearty welcome to Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. I am your host, Conan Neutron. I'm a rock and roll lifer who has toured and recorded for over 22 years. Most known for the band Conan Neutron, The Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks that may or may not be household names, but do something very special. This is episode 272. If this is your first time listening to the show, all of the archives are at protonicreversal.com and are always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. If you'd like to support the show and get episodes sooner, you can give $1 a month to patreon.com slash protonicreversal. If you like the show, or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show, and it's just a darn nice thing to do. All right. Tim Quirk, let's go. A very awesome dude. A, uh, a fellow from a great band. You might know him from uh, Too Much Joy. Uh, just a general, generally intelligent and uh, awesome man about music uh, who I have a bit of a history with in a way that you might not even know about, and maybe you'll hear about, maybe you won't. Uh, the incredible Mr. Tim Quirk. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, it has it, it has been a it has been a very long time. It's been a very long time since I, since I've seen you last. Uh, you've been a busy boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's been a long time since anybody's seen anybody. Well, really. fair, <laughs> fair, yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to start off with something kind of random. What I was thinking about the other day was the Bob Seger piece. Yeah. From 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 a while back, and how. <laughs> At the time, I was like, wow, this is so interesting and cool. And it's how, like, it wasn't really that long ago. Uh, but the entire, the rules have all changed again now, right? Yeah. And like, I don't even, is Seeger stuff even on streaming now? I don't, I don't, I believe it is, right? Yeah. So when I, when I wrote the piece, uh, which I did for NPR's music site, um, 
he, you know, he was sort of famously not on any streaming services or what was there was, and, and even in iTunes, there was like a greatest hits album. Um, but beyond just not being available digitally, the bulk of his physical catalog had fallen out of print. Um, and he was sort of semi-famously averse to re-releasing records that he didn't like. Uh, and it just struck me that, you know, the two things felt very uh, similar, like they, you know, they, they were coming from the same place. And I found it fascinating that unlike artists like, say, Springsteen, who are working in a similar vein, uh, Springsteen's very cognizant of curating his back catalog and, you know, reissuing albums on their anniversaries with lots of bonus discs and outtakes and, and DVDs about the making of, um, which fans, you know, dudes like me eat that stuff up. Um, and uh, I just found it fascinating that he didn't seem to give a damn about his legacy. Uh, <laughs> right, and, I, yeah. and I was, it, and I was curious, you know, if that was, if that was him, if it was his manager punch, who's sort of, you know, famously not really down with the internet. Um, and uh, I, I had some worries as a fan and also like as a music tech guy, um, you know, back when I'd been working for digital music services, I'd made several pitches to him and his label to get his stuff online. Because, uh, you know, I, I feel like there, there's entire generations that are missing out when you're not available that way. Uh, yeah. So I did some, you know, really kind of amateurish uh, data digging to find out what, if any effect, his absence was having uh, on his presence in, you know, the culture sphere, as it were. Yeah. No, and it, it's fascinating because that that's something that, again, as you mentioned, there's like a whole generation that basically was like, who? Wait, what? Is that? Yeah. Did Thin Lizzy do a cover of a, one of his songs? I think I'm vaguely aware of who that is. And and again, to have somebody just kind of disappear like that is kind of astounding. And it, it kind of leads to when, when you think of the cautionary tales of, um, you know, uh, what, what I guess we would call the the latter days of the wild west of streaming music and, and whatnot. How much of it was just tied up to somebody giving a damn about putting it up there, but then also wanting to put it up there? Like, like again, like, no, just do it, you know, listen this way. That's not, who cares about that old stuff or whatever? Yeah. Although, although really, I mean, we have to put disappear in quotes. It's like we're talking about, you know, I mean, the guy's, he's just not, it's not so much that he disappeared as that he wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as someone of his former stature should have been. Uh, you know, Certainly, I cannot get yeah. the fuck away from the Eagles or Queen. Yeah. Um, so how come it's, it's this much harder to hear Bob Seger? Uh, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things I found was that he actually had the, you know, there, there, there was an, there was a case to be made that his, his and his manager's approach actually had commercial benefit to him because he actually had the best selling CD of the aughts. Uh, his, so he was still milking physical product long after everybody else had given up on that. Because there's no other way to get it. Like, you know, if you yeah. if you broke or lost your copy or whatever, you just had to buy a new one. And that's, yeah. you know, I guess that's a model. <laughs> what, what I found so fascinating was his manager's uh, sort of argument for it was that uh, Bob was a single, was, was an album artist, not a singles artist. Yeah. And, you know, putting the stuff online kind of unbundled it from the package uh, and turned you into a singles artist. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense because he's an album artist whose albums aren't available. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like, <laughs> even if you want to go to a store and buy them, you can't get back in 72 or Spoken OPs. Yeah. Um, they're just not there. Well, yeah, and it's and I was, I was trying to think if there's another example uh, of somebody like that, and I can't really think of one off the top of my head, but I did think about the fact that I used to have a theory that there would be an artist somewhere that, 
would release a record and go out in the world and he maybe is poorly received or maybe they were a complete control freak. <laughs> the example I always would use is Prince. And that through whatever mechanism it would be, the record as it was known to the world would be pulled from the world and something different would take its place. Something corrected, like a different mix, whatever. I guess in, in now it would probably be like Kanye West or something along those lines, like yeah. whatever. But the idea being that it'd be, you know, it'd be a, a, a centralized repository of bits and bytes rather than a thing that you could hold in your hand. You'd be like, I remember that record was different. That was a different <laughs> record than it is now. And people are like, what? Well, I, I have I have a really funny Prince anecdote from you know I, I I'm I am both I'm sympathetic to musicians who you know want their art to be experienced in a particular way. I'm a musician and I, I understand that impulse, but I'm also a fan. Like I'm a fan first, and I feel really strongly that once your stuff is out there in the world, you don't get a say anymore. Like fans will process it how they want to process it. And my favorite sort of teaching moment about this is when Prince released "Love Sexy." as a CD, he had it engineered so that you could not scan, you know, you could not fast forward. You could skip around. Put yeah. It on shuffle play. <laughs> yeah. The disc was mastered as one continuous track, which to my mind is like, fuck you fascist. It's like, let me, let me hear your music the way you want, the way I want to. Um, but at the same time, what that meant, once we got to, you know, the world of streaming services, uh, when, his, when that album finally got delivered to us uh, from Warner on Rhapsody, uh, if you wanted to buy it, you could, you know, they, you had to uh, buy the album for nine ninety nine, but because it was only one track, you could buy the one track for ninety nine cents. Ah, that backfired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and it's again, some of these things are. They seem like, you know, almost academic arguments for uh, folks such as ourselves, uh, and let's not kid ourselves. Usually, dudes too, uh, but yeah. it is fascinating because when you think about the fact that okay the whole idea of how stuff gets from point a to point b like i mean it, ostensibly all of the gatekeepers have changed i think honestly since last time we talked right i mean the entire it's, it's entirely different now and and we're i want to get of course to the new uh too much too much joy stuff and talk about you know not just putting together and releasing a record like during like the covid times but put, in, in modern times as and as as a band that has been around kind of through bit of all of it uh but i i just don't want to like a dog with a bone i don't want to drop the fact that i think people don't like understand recognize or care maybe about how much power happens like behind the scenes at a place like you know spotify or something along those lines just how how it everything being turned over to the algorithm for instance uh is is, you know hey y'all seen terminator 2 the algorithms don't always (laughs) don't always do the best for everyone well, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, again, I'm, I, I have a particular point of view on these things because I've been on, you know, like all sides of it, right? Uh, and I, 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 I would express caution at, at invoking the term algorithm that way because I would say over the last five years, algorithm has just turned into a word. It's like critical race theory. It's a, it's a word you can blame for anything you don't like, right? Fair uh, enough. I mean, Fair enough. It is true that you can, you know. That I, I don't mean people shouldn't ask probing questions about who's designing the algorithms and what implicit biases they might have uh, and who do they favor and who do they ignore um, and are those good things or bad things and if they're bad things, how can they be corrected? And I'm not saying any of that's invalid conversations to have. It's just I get really, you know, if, if, when people are tweeting about things, it's really easy, you know, to make things Manichaean and like algorithms sure. are bad. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, algorithms are just tools, and you know, tools can be used for good things, and they can be used for terrible things. The gun is good. The penis is bad. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and I guess what I, I guess what I was driving at with that too is, is just. Uh, just the idea of it being a tailored experience, right? Whatever that means, whoever's determining it, whether it's uh, some nefarious entity, someone just trying to make a buck, or uh, just some random, you know, chaos theory, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. I'm making a lot of weird references tonight, uh, kind of thing. It, it's it's there is a by necessity of there being just a fire hose of information all the time. If you have all of music available to you immediately. You know, with with a few with a few keystrokes, and there has to be some way to sort through it all because humans are not designed. Our brains are not designed to uh, be <laughs> in the metaverse <laughs> the, yeah. the way and some I, people I, want and, us to be. And I, I should apologize up front because I've been talking about a lot of this stuff for literally over twenty years now. So yeah. I'm I'm always conscious when I'm repeating things that I've said previously. But a you know on this topic, uh, when I was running editorial teams at Rhapsody and at Google Play. Uh, you know, the we tried really hard to, uh, you know, I was never, it's weird, I was running a, a, a team of, of music experts at Google, a company that, you know, famously, like, you know, tries to get rid of humans uh, and, and rely on algorithms. So I, it was it was an uphill battle, literally from my first day there, trying to convince the engineers that uh, I didn't, you know, I wasn't some Luddite who didn't understand what they did. But right. my point was always, you know, it's not like humans are great and algorithms are bad or algorithms are wonderful and you don't need humans. It's like use them both for the things they're good at. Uh, so what we always tried to do at Rhapsody was, you know, our idea was there should be no dead ends in a music service. Yeah. But when you've got, even when we launched, and you know, it was just like 500,000 songs before we got to 5 million songs and then tens of millions of songs, uh, you can get paralyzed by so much choice and you need a way to give people navigable paths through this musical jungle that would otherwise just be overwhelming. So the the sort of aphorism I used all the time was, you know, from like 2003 on was that the age of gatekeepers was over. And if you wanted to be a gatekeeper, you were in the wrong line of business. If you were working for me and my editorial team, yeah. your job was to be a park ranger. Uh, we didn't, you know, the, the, the people paying us money to have access to all the music ever uh, did not give a shit what we liked. Um, right. We gave a shit what we liked, and right. we, you know, yeah. we're you know, we're music fans and music writers. We're evangelical. We want people to listen to the stuff we think is good, not the stuff we think is bad. But our opinions were secondary; they were beside the point. What we were really there for was saying, like, oh, if this is your starting point, here's like ten different interesting paths you might be you might want to go down from here. Um, so to me, that you know, it's not like we were designing an algorithm to just keep you in the app forever. It wasn't; we didn't even call it an app back then, but to keep you in Rhapsody forever. Uh, back in my day, we called it a was, website. But yeah, exactly. but my favorite stories in the early days were when people would send me emails and basically say, like, "God damn you, Quirk, and your your editorial team at Rhapsody." I just wanted to listen to this one song, and the next thing I knew, two and a half hours had gone by. Right. Now, to me, whether it's algorithmic or whether it's just humans literally entering, you know, top, you know key tracks and similar artists uh, and influences and followers and things like that and just in, indoor building playlists. Um, that's a good example of what you can do with with algorithmic type stuff. Whereas I would say like Facebook's newsfeed is, uh, you know, probably example number one of concrete, objective evil and harm that can be done to humanity and the planet <laughs> by people who who who's literally only literal only concern is money. 
um, and keeping people in your, you know, obviously there's a capitalistic impulse if you're running a company, especially one that's an online service to keep people in your service as long as possible. That's, you know, you've got a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders, but that's not your only responsibility. You've got a responsibility to humanity and the people providing your content as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you, one would hope that they would, people would have greater ethics than like a casino owner just trying to keep people gambling the entire yeah. time, whether it's healthy for them or not. But the, the, that really, I don't know, that, it almost seems like you're a Pollyanna if you're even trying to point out something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, when I think that that's, you know, I think back to the days of, um, you know, where the days like Rhapsody, like Epitonic, for, but like just like these, these oh, God. you know, take it away back. <laughs> <laughs> And just how cool it was as as a you know a antediluvian I guess method of discovery to like find um, I mean even just you know speaking utterly selfishly like finding like oh what other bands allegedly sound like my band oh wow this is really good like these guys sound yeah. like us we're not worthy you know like you know <laughs> whatever um, and having that experience that everyone now kind of expects I think from the different applications and stuff but have it tailored by human beings that were actually. People like, oh well, yeah, they would, they would, you know, this would go really well with this. This leads us to there, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't know. I mean, do you think that's like a, is that alive and well? Is that a dying art? Is it just not recognized in its time? I, I don't know if it's alive and well. I would say, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's so ridiculous. Like I'm so old now. I've been in this business so long. And, and when I say this business, I mean online music. Yeah, yeah, even, yeah, yeah. We haven't even gotten to the music stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so when 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 I'm giving people sort of like the you know the the five minute overview of my career, uh, it, it I start laughing because the terms I'm using are already so out of date. Like I, <laughs> I just sound like you know Grandpa Simpson basically. Because the way Rhapsody came about, like I originally went to work for a .dot com in 1999 called Listen.com. Listen.com. Google did not exist. Napster didn't exist yet. Yeah. Uh, and Listen dot and the thing that attracted me to listen uh, in 1999 was it was the first dot com I'd seen. Uh, I was a music writer at the time. I had a weekly column and they sent me a press release. I was like, oh, I'm going to do a column about this um, because this is the first dot com idea I've seen that didn't seem that didn't look like a you know a VC funded scam uh, to just like go public as quickly as possible and yeah. break in a bunch of cash and then run away. Uh, I was like, oh, this could lit- legitimately be something, but. The way we described our mission at listen.com in 1999 was we were trying to be the Yahoo of online music, which right. like sounds <laughs> like a ridiculous punchline now, but in 1999 was a super compelling. No, pitch. that was it. That that was the thing was, was, was Yahoo. And, and uh, yeah, even though now it's a, like an anachrony Yahoo, but it's like, yeah. yeah, you have to remember like Ash Jeeves was a thing. Right. right? <laughs> and the, and the thing is in 1999, the, you know, the major labels were not releasing music online. They were, they, they were rightly terrified of it. Yes. And so there was no centralized, there was no Spotify. There was no Rhapsody. There was no one place to go type in the band you wanted and start hearing their music and music yeah. that sounded like them. It was all, you know, just fragmented on all these different sites like Epitomic and mp3.com, uh, riffage.com, iuma.com, all, yeah. all these weird websites. And so listen.com's purpose was to basically become a catalog a directory of all this music we didn't host any and we had this editorial staff of like 50 music geeks basically whose job was basically to to 
make you feel okay that there was no Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin because we'd found all these, you know, indie bands that were on all these other sites that sounded just like them. We're like, oh, if you like the Rolling Stones, you're gonna like this random band you've never heard of, but their music is free on the internet, so go play it. Yeah. And again, like, and in, in, in maybe you download it because you were on a dial-up modem and it would take you a half hour to get the one song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and... <laughs> Kids today just don't know, you know, the the. What I know. Took. I feel like we're talking about seventy-eight RPM <laughs> records, you know, cranking the handle of our Victrola. It took twenty minutes to download one MP3. What's an MP3? <laughs> Fuck you, kid. <laughs> but no, I I think that's it's also fascinating because I feel like this whole era, you know, like the this like the late nineties, early two thousands, et cetera. Like it's almost blasted past in favor of the myth making of how current streaming services are, have basically solved all the problems of mankind where it's like okay, okay but that didn't that didn't come from nowhere right like you understand there were some like other things happened before that like civilizations did rise and fall before this one you're aware of that right yeah. but get, getting getting back to your previous question about like is this stuff alive and well you know uh, an anecdote i i look back on a lot is pandora you know Originally, it didn't start as Pandora. It started yeah. as this project, the Music Genome. Project. Music Genome, that's yeah. right. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the idea was to have human beings catalog songs on, you know, multiple data points of does it have trumpets and what's the BPM, um, and you know, just objective facts. Uh, and they used all these human beings to do all this classification of stuff. And you know, Tim Westergren tried several different business models before, like kind of as a Hail Mary, he, he tried this internet radio thing that, that finally clicked. Um, and the results were good because of all the humans connecting everything. But eventually they had so many people listening to stuff that they just ditched all that. And they're like, oh, we're just doing, you know, collaborative filtering now. Or it's like, oh, okay, enough people who listen to this also listen to that. Yeah. Um, we don't need all the humans anymore. So it, it's a, it does, what, what I was really good at as a, business guy, I think, um, was selling uh, executives and board members on the value of human editorial and explaining how it didn't just have to be a cost center, that it could actually make you money um, and doing it in a way that they could understand rather than in the way that, you know, a music writer will, you know, in like some outlet like The Guardian will just lament like, oh, it used to be great to hold an LP and physically hold it in my hands. We've lost right. that. And it's just like, fuck that nostalgia bullshit. Uh, there are there are better ways to make the case that like, hey, let's not lose uh, some of the good things about the past, but let's embrace the future and, and accept the good things that this can get us. Well, yeah, and, and dealing with the fact that, okay, so, yeah, you're going to miss out on selling tchotchkes to some people, right? But by the same token, you're reaching people that otherwise you never would have had the ability to reach in a no. way that, again, if they, again, caveat, caveat slash asterisk, if they, you know, can interact with it and find it, of course, and, and know to look for it. But I mean, that's quite the trade-off. And if you look at it like like that kind of stuff replacing, I guess, uh, radio, like college radio or something along those lines, I think that's a that's a healthier way to look at it than like there's, you know, what is it? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. No, I, actually, I'm not going to call out names. Certain parties <laughs> that were like talked about like missed revenue and stuff. It's like you sound like the world's crankiest asshole <laughs> right now, and nobody likes you for that. Uh, and, and I mean, not to put you find a point on it. I, I don't want to like just mire down, you know, like I want you to feel like you're like sitting at a day job or something like, like talking to me about this. But I do think it's interesting because you've been through all of it. You've been through all of the wars. Like you, you saw before all this happened, right? I mean, when we yeah. think of, like, it's wild to think about, I mean, too much joy was on Warner Brothers. 
right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that we happened. Were, we, our videos were played on MTV during yeah. the day when that was a thing, when MTV was a thing that played music videos during yeah, the day. Yeah, when, when it wasn't just Teen Mom or, or whatever it is yeah. now. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, it's just so it's so crazy to think about that, uh, you know, and, and I like talking to people, you know, I call it like, you know, folks that, like live through the gold rush uh, <laughs> when they when they come on the show. And uh, as a band that very idiosyncratic, you guys had your own own voice. You had but you had a clear and palpable sense of humor about it without being Dr. Demento. And I have nothing against Dr. Demento, but there's a certain niche. I love Dr. Demento, actually. But there's a certain niche of. I guess we would call it humor music. I don't know exactly how it would be classified, but it gets put into this lesser tier that somehow Weird Al can, you know, transcend a little bit because of, you know, how awesome he is. But you were very serious about what you were doing, but you weren't serious about other aspects of it. And I always felt, found that was very interesting um, beam to walk. With well, yeah, and, it, and it, is, it, is, it is a bit of a tightrope. Uh, because you could easily fall off into the comedy rock side. Yeah. Uh, and even when you're maintaining your balance, you can get dismissed as having fallen off into the comedy rock side. The way I describe it is we were deadly serious about the power of rock and roll yeah. um, and had felt like we'd been burned by the promise. You know, we put so much faith in our heroes um, and had watched them sell out or whatever, you know, just felt like to us, you know, going down the wrong Remember paths, selling out? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that we were constantly uh sort of checking ourselves to make sure we weren't becoming the assholes we hated and that kind of self-consciousness and and meta-ness you know sort of a letterman-esque ironic sense of irony in a way about like you know the thing that was so revolutionary about david letterman in the 80s was he went on tv and just acted like it was ridiculous to be on tv and to have a show and the conventions of all these shows were absurd yeah um but he'd still have a show with all those conventions and we kind of did that in the rock space, not because, you know, we thought it was ridiculous, but because we didn't want to be ridiculous and we didn't know a way to get to the truth without acknowledging how absurd the way we were trying to get there was. Well, I mean, if they were absurd times and, you know, not that they aren't absurd times now, but, yeah. I, I, you know, especially, uh, I mean, Serial Killers is 91, right? I mean, that's like right, right the like the, the epicenter. <laughs> just, just, just before Nirvana changed uh, everything for yeah. bands of our ilk. We got swept up in the sort of the second wave after the replacements who's could do REM wave. Um, when it's like, okay, these guys can make gold records. Let's go, but let's go scoop up a bunch of other indie bands. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like people like us, Big Dipper and Trip Shakespeare, uh, we're, we're getting signed, uh, you know, and given one or two records to, to see if you could stick or not and then show them the door, basically. Yeah, lottery tickets. They felt they like they were buying yeah. lottery tickets, basically. Uh, and, yep. and then that was, of course, before major labels like, oh, we can make our own bands. We can, we can sort of manufacture. <laughs> we don't need these guys. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a that's a different show entirely. But I, I, again, like it's interesting to me that you guys uh, came through on that window uh, and were able to get to. You know, again, that was like the, I feel like the last time the freaks were sort of let in for for a minute for, on that larger level, on that this worldwide level of, of, and again, everyone has access to you know be heard on a worldwide level now. Yeah. But like, there were just fewer. You talked about David Letterman. I was watching that History of Late Night series on uh, one of these cable channels. I don't know, and it occurred to me it's, it was like, I was like, oh yeah, like it, you know, there was not that many. 
There were three. Yeah, it was three. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like the Balkans now where there, there's there's everybody has. Well, there's Colbert and there's Fallon and there's Kimmel and then there's there's uh, you know Eric Andre for the people that are like really on the drugs and you know like so on and so on. It was it was like oh no, if you got on like one of these shows like. Be, there was nothing else to watch. Like that was the thing that, that people watch. And it wasn't like it was quite like that. Like Letterman sort of kicked a lot of those doors open, but it just occurs to me like all the stuff that you did. I mean, I, I again, I, I don't want to harp on it that, that era, but like, you know, the whole two live crew thing alone is just like, I mean, talk about meme worthy. I mean, God, <laughs> <laughs> like before there were well, memes, really. The thing I say a lot is that, you know, especially when people when I hear people getting cranky about the internet and Spotify and Google ruining everything it's like you know the main uh look at publishing look at what's happened with sync licenses like yeah. when we would get a sync license in a movie you know or a Budweiser commercial something like that back in the 90s um that could easily be a hundred fifty thousand dollar payday and today, it's amazing if it's a $15,000 payday, right? And that's not because of the internet. No, uh, no, It's just because there's so much more competition now. It is so much cheaper and easier uh, to get to make professional sounding music yeah. um, that there are your, your biggest challenge as an artist uh, isn't making enough money from Spotify plays. It's rising above the noise of so many other people who are just as good as, if not better than you, also clamoring in the marketplace to get themselves hard. So it's the competition is is the biggest challenge. Um, you know, making money is comes is, is I'm not saying it's easy, um, but you have to get heard first. Uh, and, and and once you get heard, then and that's why I like things like Spotify and YouTube and, and all that kind of stuff. It makes it easier to get heard. Um, but once you get heard, you have to be good enough that people want to stick with you. And that's the that's the real challenge. And, and I think sometimes people attribute like the luck or even chaos theory uh, towards like something finding a greater audience uh, appropriately, but they, they miss that fact that there has to be something there. And if there's not yes. something there, it, it's not going to connect. It's not going to stick with it. And for every, well, I, I always, when I'm on panel, when I was on panels, when I was the dude at the music service and, you know, I was at South by Southwest or something like that. And it was mostly musicians in the audience and they were always asking for like, how do I make it? How do I, you know, once I'm in your service, you know, what do I have to do? And I'm like, well, step one, be good. Don't <laughs> suck. That's literally like everybody forgets that piece. Um, yeah, nobody wants to hear about that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, 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 uh, it, 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 I was struck in the odds how many people thought like once their record was in iTunes or in Rhapsody yeah. uh, or in Spotify, once Spotify came around, that was it. Then the world yeah. would discover them. It's like, no, no, no. The world's gonna beat a patch. John Doe, <laughs> yeah. John Doe had a song I think in the, in the late '90s, early aughts called "There's Too Many Bands." Yes, uh, <laughs> and I definitely know where he was coming from on that. And and now more than ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and 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 I think that that's you know it's notable too that certain uh, types of bands like and I would equate too much joy in, in a echelon of bands like uh, Dead Milkman or something in the fact that there's always going to be like. You know, maybe, maybe like younger folks that discover like, oh, this is hilarious. And then like they'll stick around because it's good because the songs are good because there's hooks there. And like, oh, wow, this is actually a really well-written song. But, you know, they're, they're coming in for the, you know, they're coming in for the goof and they're staying for the substance, basically. Well, I, th I think with us in particular, a, an interesting phenomenon would happen because we would have, you know, especially back then, the songs would only exist in our heads or on like shitty demos, you know, on cassettes yeah. until we went in and made the record. And so often 
you know, when we were making a record, we'd have all the lyrics and we'd have some kind of a cover concept and we'd hire an artist and we'd say like, okay, we're going to go spend three months making the record. You start working on the art. And they'd be working not from the music, they'd be working from the lyrics. And we'd get these dark gothic things because if you actually sit down and read the lyrics- They're kind of messed up. The ratio, the ratio of jokes to like, I want to slip my wrist, you know, because yeah. life is so hard and miserable uh, is like, you know, 10 to 90, basically. Yeah. Maybe it's 30 to 70 in some, in some instances, but it's not a laugh a minute. Um, and it's not, and, and what happened with us, I think, particularly on our first sort of self-funded, self-released record, Green Eggs and Crack, yep. the jokes were the things we were, we were better at the jokes before, you know, the, the, the everything else was just adolescent, shitty adolescent poetry. Um, right. It took us a while to be able to blend the two of them reasonably well. So the thing that first attracted people to us was song, were songs like Drum Machine or The Otter Song on the debut, which, yeah. you know, which college radio and, and you know, there were only like four alternative radio stations back then, right. uh, like right. 99X in, in, in Tijuana, San Diego and, and K-Rock in LA. Um, those are the songs they would play because honestly, the other songs on Green Eggs and Crack kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> I think we got, I think we got better as we went along at, at, at uh, you know, having the humor be a part of a song rather than the only thing to listen to on the album. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I, I rem- there, there were some some of the reviews were, if not openly disdainful, but definitely sort of like we are not on board with this, and we're going to be oh, yeah. as elitist about it as possible. Uh, but well, that, and I, I mean, I, I this is going to sound self-justifying and maybe self-aggrandizing, but I I'm going to say it because I really really believe it. Uh, nobody gives you props for courage uh, for mixing humor in rock and roll, but it is one of the bravest fucking things you can do because. So many people will just dismiss you out of hand. Yeah. It's really yeah. hard. Um, and I'm not saying, I, I want to make this crystal clear. I'm not comparing myself to these people. I'm saying these are the lights that I'm like reaching toward. You know, These are the pinnacles to my mind. Being a Randy Newman or a John Prine, uh, somebody who can mix pathos uh, and humor um, in, the, in the same line, really, uh, you know, that was always the goal to me. Um, those were people that resonated with me, and I, I think there's a there's a categorical difference between a Randy Newman and a Weird Al, much as I love Weird Al. Likewise, um, yeah, I agree, and I agree with that. I think that's and it's important. There's a lot of, again, you, you mentioned those sort of like darker elements to it. I mean, even like you know, in, in the choice of, you know, some cover songs. I'm thinking of uh, the one after that. You know, you had a, a Seasons in the Sun, and it's like that's a pretty jacked up song, honestly. <laughs> like if you stop and actually think about like the lyrics and like what it's about and uh there's i mean there's and there's a ton of versions of it out there but it's like god that's so, so heartbreaking you know yeah so i'm a, a little a little commercial here because i'm 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 i find this fascinating anybody whether you love or hate the song seasons in the sun the history of it is really fascinating so go to my website tbquirk.com i think the second or third article there is called the hidden depths of seasons in the sun and it will basically walk you through that song's genesis uh and the fact it, it began life as like this really bitter cynical french chanson by jacques brel called le moribund uh and then rod McEwen translated it in the early 60s um and turned it into a folk song uh that the kingston trio sang That's right. and a bunch of other people uh did covers of it all with rod Kewen's arrangement um and there were at least five or six versions of that song that did not connect with the public until Terry Jacks re re redid it in 1972 and basically threw out the bitter cynical ending of yeah. the original yeah. um, and wrote his own completely sappy maudlin 
uh, and it completely changes the meaning of the song. Yeah. Uh, but that song is basically staring into the void of death. Yes. Uh, and it sold 14 million copies. Right. Uh, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, and that's that, that to me is fascinating. Like somebody got 14 million people to confront their eventual demise. That's not a thing that popular culture often does. It's astounding, really. And I do, I yeah. remember that piece. And that, that was, that was a couple of years ago. I remember, I remember reading about it. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, little bit of a music dude myself actually and i and i i didn't know half of that I, I was like wow holy moly this this is like you know talk about i mean i do my own research these days means something totally different but like i was amazed at, at the <laughs> level of detail uh behind that song and the, and the amount of just crazy turns that the story would take like how this song again this kind of jacked up song if you stop and think about it like you know just morbid like you know like beyond existential song is gigantic worldwide hit and how it got to there and then yeah. how like and terry, terry jacks tried to get the beach boys to do yes. his version of it before he ever put out his own so there you can actually find it on youtube there's you can hear the beach boys singing basically terry jacks's version of seasons in the sun and the, you know a couple of them decided it was too it was too savvy so basically if the beach boys Amazing. think your song is too savvy, Song's too savvy that's a yeah. warning sign uh, and he tried to get another band, some Canadian band, I forget their name, to do it. And that band said no. And they did a different song of his. So eventually he was just like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'll record it myself. Um, that it became the biggest thing yeah. he ever did in his life. Turned out okay for him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then it also strikes me as like, what a perfect song for Too Much Joy to do, right? Because well, the, although I will say, I've, I've sort of, I've, my opinion on Seasons in the Sun has evolved over the years. One of the ways I sort of fell down this rabbit hole of all of the backstory of Seasons in the Sun was when I was in college, uh, on campus one day, I just came across a table of used LPs that somebody was selling, and I started flipping through them, and I found this, Rod McEwen has an album called Seasons in the Sun, which has his version of Seasons in the Sun on it, and I was like, holy shit, I had no idea Rod McEwen, like, you know, the singing poet, uh, ever did Seasons in the Sun. I, did, yeah. I had no idea he'd written it. Uh, and I had no idea there was a translation of this Jacques Brel song. And the album, I think it, I think I got it for like three bucks or something. Uh, it has testimonials on the back from Phyllis Diller and Vincent Price, <laughs> which is like, so even if it hadn't been called Seasons in the Sun, I'm going to buy an album that yeah, Vincent yeah. Price and Phyllis Diller are recommending it to me. Because what the fuck is that about? Yeah, stop talking. Uh, you've made the sale. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And when I listened to it, I was like, wait a minute, this is this has a different third verse. So the so Rod McEwen's yeah. version, um, which is quite different than Jacques Brel's version even, uh, in the third verse, he basically sings to his his wife Francoise and explains that uh you know he loved her uh even though she cheated with his friend and you realize the friend he was saying goodbye to in the first verse totally betrayed him with his wife yeah. and the very very last line before the final chorus is you know with your lovers everywhere just be careful I'll be there so he basically says I'm gonna haunt you from beyond the grave because you <laughs> fucked me over uh very French even though that's not what Jacques Brel wrote uh very cynical very bitter yeah. um and when we did our version like we felt very righteous and that we were restoring the third verse uh to its proper place and it, it it's many many years later now. I'm like, no, no. Terry Jacks actually did the right thing because that that bitter third verse is a distancing mechanism. It makes it this funny O. Henry story, as opposed to a no. Everybody dies and that sucks. So let's all just cry about it. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Which is more French New Wave, really. I mean, if you stop yeah. and think about it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's 
you know, it, it, again, staggeringly nuanced, right? And, and something that uh, <laughs> the music world not exactly uh, look at Sparks, right? Sparks, huge in the UK, as, as the excellent documentary finally has shown to the world of like, hey, this brilliant band, super like appreciated as heroes in the UK and almost couldn't get ar- get arrested in America. Yeah. You know, like it's you you can you can sit there all day trying to like cater things to a cone of neutron or whatever and go broke in the process <laughs> but I, it occurs to me that how much of it like kind of got over and still works and and sometimes especially for records that there there are certain uh like dated production values and things like that that immediately place it in time it was starting to get better around that time but i think like you know i'm thinking of like gated snares and things like that like all right sure we get it you you want it to sound nothing like an actual drum all right fine uh <laughs> But, you know, I, th- I think it holds up. Like, I, I did, I, you know, when I, when I wanted to have you on, not only did I, uh, w- which I do want to actually talk about the recent stuff, the new record, uh, I, was like, I was like, oh, let's go back and listen to all this stuff. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I will say that, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, um, the, I think the first one is, you know, it, it's okay. It's okay. Like, it's, 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 everyone's got a first record, right? You know, and some people knock it out of the park and some people get better. But... <laughs> I think that uh, which uh, is the, is the second one's the one with uh, that's one with clowns. Yeah, right? Son of Sam, I am is the is the follow up oh. to Green Eggs and Crack, <laughs> which is sort of like talk about uh, for those that haven't read the um, the letter U and the numeral two uh, by the by the <laughs> Negative Land guys and the idea of fair use and sampling, which I feel like there's a a pre Beastie Boys and a post Beastie Boys version of that. Oh yeah. But yeah. Uh, wow, yeah. Uh, how to unpack that? So okay, so there's it's actually song. a pre. I would say it's a pre Bismarcky and a post Bismarcky. Oh, actually, good point. Good point. Good point. So, uh, clowns was a pretty. That was a big controversial thing. That was. I mean, I remember that was. That may have been the first time I actually heard of you guys. Uh, so, for for those who don't know, what happened with clowns was we. Had, I mean, we were. I would say inspired by hip hop without trying to be, you right. know, a white rap act. Um, but we re- one of the things we loved about the hip hop albums in the late 80s uh, was just, to me, a lot of the samples and, you know, there wouldn't just be samples inside the songs, there'd be snippets, you know, connecting songs. Sure. And the, the, the effect to me was sort of just like walking down the street in New York, like there's a saxophone blowing out of this window and then a car drives by and it's got this thumping bass. Yeah. Um, and then you hear like somebody's watching a cartoon in the basement apartment uh, across the street and all these things are in your head. That's sort of the feel that I loved. And so on Son of Sam I Am, we basically, uh, we hired a guy, we brought all these LPs that we wanted to intersperse within our songs and in between the songs. And we literally hired a guy to scratch them directly into the songs like we didn't know from samplers or anything yeah yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. old school <laughs> he had a yeah. turntable and he was literally <laughs> scratching them into our songs as we were playing uh it was it was ridiculous and goofy but it was fun and one of the things we did before clowns was jay the guitar player had this bozo the clown record from when yeah. he was a kid and there's a story that bozo's telling on that record where he just laughs his goofy bozo laugh where he goes then i found something in one of my pockets it was about as big as your shoe but it was shaped like a rocket and we're like oh my god that is so gross and weird and perverted (laughs) uh and it fits in perfectly with a song about how clowns are evil but adults don't seem to realize it but every kid understands um so we had that just as an intro to the song yeah. we did not know that Fairly bozo innocuous. larry Harmon, the guy that owned the bozo trademark was a very litigious fuck uh so i don't think he ever heard too much joy but he he had a press or he had a clipping service that would send him 
any article that mentioned Bozo the Clown. So he started seeing some reviews about the song that mentioned this sample at the beginning of the song. We got a threatening letter from his lawyer, um, which was ridiculous because it had this, you know, red, white, and blue uh, caricature of Bozo on the letterhead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a cease and desist letter saying, you know, <laughs> we can't do this anymore. Uh, and luckily we got the letter at the exact same time that we were negotiating the deal uh, with Giant Warner Brothers yeah. to basically re-release the record. So they bought out all the stock that Alias, the indie label that had originally put it out, um, had. So they ceased selling the version with, with Bozo the Clown on it and they re-released it. They remixed That's a Lie. They put in Seasons in the Sun and If I Was a Mekon. Uh, and they took out the Bozo sample and left in the U2 sample and the Big Country sample. <laughs> yeah, the they didn't Thomas get all of them. Yeah. Every other <laughs> just, just, the, just the non-clown related one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and the I, funny, and, and, and I, I had always thought that that was it. That was the deal. Yeah. Uh, but my wife, who was, who, uh, she was not my wife at the time. She was just the lady that worked at Alias Records. Uh, but now she's my wife. She told me after the fact, like literally 10 years later, when I was telling someone this story, I was like, yeah, we, and, you know, so we never had to settle or anything. She goes, no, we had to settle. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, we had to send him a check for $200. I was like, that's what Bozo <laughs> settled for was $200? Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a lot of hay for $200, yeah. boy. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, okay, so 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 lots to go there. Also, I I do want to point out that um, if I remember correctly, and it's been years, but I think I think it's in Shakes the Clown, but without the sample, right? Which which um or, or is yeah, the sample? I, I mean, it, it play the song plays over the end credits. I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, which uh, which I, that only comes to mind because I, <laughs> I was re- I was reminded of it recently uh, because of course the incredible Bobcat Goldthwait doesn't doesn't ever stop, and uh, he's. He's he's a dude that one should listen to, especially when controversial com- comedians do controversial things. He's got, I think he's got a lot of wisdom, and more so than you might expect with the the character that he played throughout uh, his 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 fame period. But I hadn't thought of Shakes the Clown in a very long time, and I was like, oh yeah, that's 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 a really. I don't think you could ever make that movie now, but you know, I love it. It's great. I mean, how how could you not love a movie where Shakes the Clown? Where we're not Shakes the Clown, where a cloud pees on Mrs. Brady's head. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and and it, it kind of predates the whole, like, party down, I scribe it to, uh, aesthetic of, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, they, they have lives. These people have lives, and, like, they don't really like doing the thing that they're doing that, to make yeah. this money. They're just, it's a job for them. It's just, in fact, they're clowns, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you mentioned that's a lie, and I actually wanted, wanted to ask you about Is there some reason why that wasn't originally... Uh, on the record was it was it just like a did you not no it was on the record it was ju- it's just when when giant re-released it um they wanted to make it a single so they remixed they, it. there's a remix for it is, is yeah there's okay a, yeah, so yeah, there's yeah, the, okay. if it's you find the alias version uh on lp or cassette because yeah. they didn't put out cds uh, which you can find sometimes in, in used record shops uh you will hear a different version of that's alive you will hear the bozo sample uh, and you will not hear if I was a Mekon or Seasons of the yeah, Sun. Right, right. And, and uh, well, well, and the reason why I bring that one up is because I think that's a perfect example of, like, the Too Much Joy thing, which is the fact that, in a way, it's Planet of the Apes style and that it's, like, it's right in the title. But, like, it, it kind of turns around a couple times. Like, the, you, you know, it's, again, it's a fine line, right? Like, it, it's sort of like if, if you're too clever, then... Uh, um, <laughs> then you're like, what, the shaving cream, shaving cream. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like that kind of... And I say that as a child of Dr. Demento, don't get me wrong. But it, it seemed like it always stayed on the, like, no, yeah, but that's that's actually a really great riff. And, like, this song kind of slams. And, you know, sounds good when you play it loud in the car and so and so. 
Thanks. I mean, we, you know, like I said, we were we were fans of late '80s, early '90s hip hop, uh, and when when we were listening to the Yellow Cool J record that that song was on, every time that song would come up, we'd just look at each other and go, God damn, that sounds like a Too Much Joy song, just yeah. lyrically. It fits perfectly, uh, yeah. So we, we, wrote a, we wrote a, you know, sort of punk pop arrangement for it. And as we would come to do, you know, later on, uh, you know, terms like cultural appropriation were not around back then, but we did realize it was sort of skeevy to just take this song. We're like, we're white kids from the suburbs, let's, change the lyrics you know we got we got L cool j's permission to do so yeah. um but we're basically like let's write lies that you know let's use some of his verses we'll, we'll the ones that, that anybody could sing uh we'll make some of our own lies and we'll write some of our own words and we did the same thing later on when we covered the record starry eyes because that was that's basically a song about their personal mishaps with their manager taking advantage of them and all the things that went wrong for them in their career in the music business we're like we can totally relate to that but if we're you know we love the song it's power pop beautiful gorgeous chorus but if we're going to sing about problems in the music business let's sing about our actual you, you have your own problems that you could yeah. <laughs> that you they could use it an author uh can i mean was that with with talking to LL, was that like through management or was that like what was that i just want to know what that conversation was like where it's like wait who wants to do what now so it, i mean there, there, there's lots of different ways to go about something like this the way it worked for us was our publicist at the time Leila turkan set to run uh pr had was basically the big pr firm in the hip-hop world yeah. and she wanted to branch out beyond hip-hop and so we were one of the first rock acts she took on um and uh you know we were doing some hip-hoppy things uh or you know things influenced by hip-hop and you know, we had the, we, we were doing this cover live and we wanted to put it on the record, but you know, obviously when you're changing somebody's songs, somebody's lyrics, you need the writer's permission. Um, so I'm pretty sure we did it through her. I think I just typed out the lyrics we wanted to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, she got it to his manager, his manager got it to him. He gave it the thumbs up. He appeared in the video. So clearly he was okay with it. Um, but he certainly could have said no. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and again, it's got to be like considering where he was at in the world at the time too. Like it had to be like, huh? <laughs> like there had to be like some kind of like, wait, wait, tell me, tell, all right, explain it again. Or maybe he was just like, oh, cool, right on. You know, who knows? I, I, I wasn't in the room when it happened, but I'm just fascinated by by that kind of thing because it because it is. I, I mean, you know, you had like the KRS one uh, thing on uh, serial killers too. Like I mean, it's sort of like there was always a bit of it seemed like you know admiration for that world. And while acknowledging full well that that is not where too much joy was. Yeah. And we are, we are, we are also, uh, you know, briefly like for, for milliseconds uh, in a tone loke video uh, in a crowd scene in a club. Uh, and we're in a salt and pepper video. Yes. Very, very briefly. Which, which, which is, which is fantastic. I can, can you, so uh, again, it's hard. I, I don't feel like it's a controversy that has carried over into modern history, but the two live crew thing was one of the great free speech versus obscenity arguments of uh certainly you know like when when uh, of that age and i thought you guys had one of the most astounding response like armed response smart ass uh responses to it and uh how, how, was that just an idea of like hey we should dot 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 when when that happened so the there uh, again there's a longer explanation of everything that went on with our two live crew protest uh on the website yeah uh, uh and i'll stop saying that now i promise um yeah you don't need to so people lot, can just go to the website it, the short yeah. version of the story is <laughs> we were recording serial killers when that all shit went down uh and basically 
first, I believe the first thing that happened was Charles Freeman, a record store owner in Florida, got arrested for selling as nasty as they want to be. Uh, and then uh, Two Live Crew themselves got arrested for singing the songs at Club Futura in Broward County in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, and so we were in the control room as the, the record was being mixed. Um, and I'm pretty sure the producer and the, the engineer had kicked us out of the control room because they were sick of all our suggestions. Uh, so I'm pretty sure we were like getting stoned and watching Star Trek The Next Generation or something. Uh, and we flipped to MTV News on the commercial and we saw what was going on and we got pissed. Yeah. Uh, and we were complaining about the fact that, you know, all anyone was doing was writing editorials about like, oh, this is bad, free speech, First Amendment, duh. Yeah, yeah. We're like, yeah, but nobody's actually doing anything. And I'm pretty sure it was Sandy, the bass player, uh, it was his idea. He said, you know, we should have a protest concert. Like we should, we should get a whole bunch of bands. We should all go down to club Futura. We should all do one, two live crew song. Uh, you know, let's get a whole bunch of punk rock bands to go down a whole bunch of white bands uh, and see if the police arrest yeah, us. If, if it'll if be it, glorious, they'll need like 10 school buses to take us all to jail. Yeah. Um, and uh, our publicist was in the room and I, I could see like her, her yeah. ears perked up. She's like, that's a really good idea. Um, yeah. So she definitely saw the PR <laughs> angle of it. Um, but to me, it was a righteous, it, it's the type yeah. of political protest I personally am comfortable with. It's funny and it makes a point. Like we are going to go, we're going to, you know, we're going to do some of our songs. We're going to do a bunch of punk pop. We're going to do with two live crew, what we did with LL Cool J. Um, we'll just do our version of their songs. Uh, and we'll see if the police arrest us and, you know, and we'll be one of like a dozen bands and we couldn't get anyone else to join us. <laughs> but we booked the club and put out the press release that it was going to happen before we got all the notes. Right. And so then we had to make a decision like, okay, if it's just us, this like developing act, it looks like it's this cynical ploy for attention mm -hmm. as opposed to a righteous First Amendment protest. Yeah. So should we call it off or not? And we ultimately decided to go forward with it because like, we're like, you know, people want to think badly about us. That's fine. But, you know, let's protect the fucking First Amendment while we can. Yeah. And there was there was it seemed like there was a righteous indignation behind it as, as well, you know, yeah. more than anything else. I've just yeah, as you mentioned, the substance of like it, it became a process story and then the, the substance of um, the fact that there was this, you know, moral panic uh, being put in there and, and let's be clear and, and one, one thing I, I like about and i can't remember if it was one of the writings or just like a discussion or whatever you just talked about how you know go, going through the lyrics and being like oh these lyrics are pretty bad like this is <laughs> this, this kind of sucks a I, I i hate the record i mean and, and as a guy I, I was sandy was the huge massive hip-hop fan like i yeah. would not have found schoolie d if sandy hadn't come sure. and said like oh you gotta listen to this um but as a casual fan of the genre at the time i was flabbergasted by how bad the record was by how <laughs> by how how misogynistic the humor was yeah. how lame the beats were um just how low a bar the comedy was aiming for uh i was like it's bad punchlines, it's yeah. it's it's bad politics um but i don't give it you know in terms of freedom of speech like None of that matters. It doesn't like, matter. You can't have a debate matter. about whether yeah. it's any good until people are allowed to hear it in the first place. So yeah. job one was protecting their right to make their art. You're allowed to make shitty art right. in America. You're supposed to be. <laughs> you sure are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that gets proven over and over again on a daily basis. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I appreciated the commitment to the bit, so to speak. You know, and and especially because like at, at the time, you know. I, I, it didn't seem like there was a lot of people that were that were willing to do that, and I think about 
like I think Sinead O'Connor would have an easier time now, you know. Uh, than, yeah. Oh yeah. Than, than she did then, obviously, <laughs> and it's it's just crazy that we were in 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 like that time period that it's <laughs> yeah. Oh, all of free speech is um gonna be resting on two live crew. Okay. <laughs> really? That's 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 what we're doing. Okay, but. Again, commitment to it, and 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 like it, that's a, something that it showed what kind of band you guys were, and, and also it's easy to write smart ass songs, but when you're putting it on the line that way, you know, and and putting it towards something, it, it's it, it's smart assery in the in the name of something rather than for its own sake. So, yeah, and I and and I really have to praise our drummer who his day job, which he had not quit at the time, and he never quit really. Uh, he was a he was a New York city police officer um so we were all risking a night in jail you know and a fine if the jury yeah. found against us i mean there was a you know 0.1 percent chance of jail time if the jury really hated these new york interlopers coming down to florida and telling them how to do their business right. um but it wasn't a real risk uh we knew we were going to spend at least a night in jail um but tommy risked his fucking career like he could have yeah. lost his job yeah. uh for doing that and he still did it so he he was braver than the rest of us yeah, that's real. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just one of those crazy inflection points that happen in history. Sometimes we're like, wait, what? Wait, what? What happened? What? Like, really? Really? That? OK. All right. You know, I, I think. Oh, it, I mean, oh, I mean, I wish it was crazy. Like they're literally banning and banning and burning books. Yeah. You know, the government is doing that right now. Uh, what's going on in Texas and Virginia and Florida? It's fucking sickening. So we don't learn our lessons as a country. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the fact that nobody remembers why Tipper Gore was universally <laughs> reviled by, by yeah. people of a certain age, you know, it's sort of like, well, there's really good reason for it. Uh, all right. So let's so let's talk about serial killers. Let, let's talk about, um, you, you know, there's some long haired guys from England is, I think, a classic Too Much Joy song. Um Clearly, uh, Crush Story is obviously like a huge hit. It's 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 almost like it was the most fully realized. I feel like too much joy uh, uh, with with also the ability to get out again at a time where you couldn't get out everyone immediately. Uh, like where was the band at at that time? I mean, again, knowing this is like right before, right before the Gold Rush. Like Gold Rush is like so you know, we we had <laughs> we had just gotten signed. Uh, and so Serial Killers was, so basically we'd gotten signed and, uh, Warner Brothers re-released the indie record we'd made for Alias, you know, with a couple changes we'd mentioned, but Serial Killers was basically our major label debut. It was the first record we were making with a major label budget in Hollywood studios with a Hollywood producer. Yeah. Um, and you know, we were not super naive, uh, starry eyed kids. Um, we were naiver than I, than we thought we were, but we were not super naive. Um, we recognized that our chances of making a penny from this deal were slim to none. Yeah. Uh, so our approach going in was basically like, we're going to spend every last fucking penny on this record so that we can get the sounds we hear in our heads on out into the world. Yeah. Um, and we are going to utilize this Hollywood producer to do that for us. We're going to tell him what we're looking for. Uh, and it was a, a, I mean, the whole recording process was, was, you know, was rather painstaking. It's the way you did it back in those days. You don't have to do it this way anymore, but, you know, we were still recording on analog two-inch tape, uh, and 
if the you know if the producer didn't think the drums were in time, he would literally splice the tape. So take three and take five would get put together, and you know you'd comp your vocals. So you know right. you'd sing it like thirty five times, and then he'd send you out of the you know like you go eat some pizza or something, and me and the engineer are going to sit here and create this Frankenstein's monster from all the different takes he did, uh, and and we were we were down for it, but we uh, had written the song crush story. It was semi-inspired by, uh, I think it was Love and Rocket song, uh, So Alive. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sure. We had been watching, that was like a semi-hit on MTV at the yeah. time, and we just really, really admired the vibe of the song. And we're like, how did they do that? Yeah. I don't think if you listen to Crush Story, you're like, oh, they're ripping off Love and Rockets or anything no, like that. No. It was just like- But it had a vibe, that, or has a vibe. Yeah, it's not, it's not a blazing fast song, but it's really affecting. Um, it sort of draws you in, and I had this lyric, I had- fall in love with the lady from the record company. And I was, you know, I was just head over heels in crush with her basically. Yeah. Uh, and so the lyric just came like that. Uh, and we were pretty sure it was the single yeah. and we get out to Hollywood and, you know, we play all our songs for Paul Fox our, our overpriced uh, overproducer. And I say that affectionately. <laughs> I love, I love, I love his work. I love what he did on the record. I'm, sure. I'm not yeah. slamming him by any means, but he was overpriced and overproduced. Um, he he kept trying to scale us back and saying like, no, you're an indie band. We're like, no, no, no. This is our Beach Boys record. Like, yeah. you want to go crazy here? Um, so uh, we played him all our songs, and we get to Crush Story. We're like, this is the single. Uh, and he goes, yeah, I don't hear it. Uh, go. And he did what Hollywood producers do with indie bands that just got signed to a major label. He's like, go lock yourselves in the hotel room and write a hit. Listen to the radio <laughs> and write a top forty song. And to our credit, I think we before we said "fuck you, no," we actually spent a weekend trying to do it mm -hmm. uh, to see if we could come up with anything better. And at the end of the weekend, we're like, "No, it's Crush Story. Crush Story is it's the best song we've written, and we need to treat." It. And I would, you know, I think we, I think the budget was one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, and we went a bit over budget. So I think we spent something like one hundred fifty-seven thousand dollars on the record, and a third of it was spent on Crush Story, pretty much. Wow. Um, we we threw everything we had into that recording and that song. Uh, and, you know, I'm really proud of it. I never get sick of people telling me it's their favorite song. That's awesome. I mean, because a lot of times when you sink that much effort into something, you know, you can't even hear it as music anymore. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, my God, no, anything but that one. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's well, kind he of may, I mean, he was, and I would say, without being like a Phil Spector-ish wave a gun at you, uh, right. you know, uh, taskmaster he made us sing those fucking harmonies like every yeah, single huge. time they come <laughs> around we sang so so that crush story yeah. we must have done that a thousand times <laughs> you're not gonna forget it anytime soon no no did you already know him from uh what oranges and lemons must have been like that was a little bit earlier right yeah that was that was that was that was the main thing i i can't say I'd listen to the Yes record he produced, but that that was did the main one that we listened to. It. <laughs> is yeah, it one, is it one of the record. '80s ones? Oh, oh man! <laughs> but or Oranges and Lemons was the one that made us go. He's the guy. And the, yeah. the funny thing is, we had, you know, when you when you sign, or at least back in those days, when you sign uh, with a major, they'd sort of bring in this parade of producers, and you'd interview yeah. them, right? You know, right. you'd have lunch, you know, in this fancy hot whatever the the restaurant of the day was in Hollywood, uh, and. You'd have conversations, you know, they'd sort of tell you their vision for the record. And so many of them were like, you know, you guys are a punk rock band. We're just going to set you up in a studio and capture you live. Right. And we we did not hire any of those people because we're like, we know what we, we, we sound know, like we know, live. We know we what those sound, sound like. We don't sound yeah. very good live. We put on great shows, yeah. um, but nobody wants to listen to the tapes afterwards. They want to relive the experience, but you don't want to hear it. You want to be there. 
Because uh, a show a is one record. thing and a record is another, and they don't have to. I mean, and so, for some bands, the best the best record might be like you know uh, stripped down, just like live in a room. But that doesn't mean it's one size fits all. Like if you have, yeah. I, and that's something that I've never. I, and maybe it's it's got to be the musician in me. Like I like it. I like the records to be like, oh wow, that's where did that come from? That's cool. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I think that's great. And that, I mean, and it's all over the place on that on that record too. So. Uh, so I mean, so all right. So you you're interviewing. And the thing, interviewing I will the say, somebody yeah. recently did a retrospective about serial killers, and they gave me they gave us what I think is my favorite compliment we've ever gotten about the band, but specifically about that song. They basically said, uh, I, and I forget what the exact line was, but they they quoted a lyric, and they said, "This is so far removed from cliche, but you know exactly what it means, uh, and it's not something anyone else would write." It's like that is my goal for every song we've ever written. Like avoid fucking cliches make it be a thing that you know that hadn't existed in the world before yeah that's 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 high praise indeed <laughs> i mean that's 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 kind of like why you do it right you know, you're like oh yeah. yeah somebody got it cool <laughs> that's nice uh yeah and and you know like the aforementioned long-haired guys from england you know that that's a, that's that's a good tune that's one that like catches the attention like who are these guys like in, in a sparksy sort of way you know sparksy sure yeah you know and it's a it's a it's a true story it yeah. was, uh, and that is one of the rare ones where the lyric didn't originate with me. Uh, the first three lines were the guitar players. Uh, uh, he was he was expressing his frustration at an incident that had actually happened to him, yeah. where he'd been getting somewhere with somebody from our label, and then like you know some long haired dude in a different in a British band showed up, and all of a sudden Came he didn't over. exist. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, damn, I really <laughs> thought I was going to get over last night, and then this fucker showed up. Well, and it's so. It's it's so right, you know, clearing uh, crystalline to a point of of a certain kind of experience, and like that's yeah. kind of like I almost feel like there's this push. I know there's a push, especially in pop music, to be as, as sort of uh, what, what do they what do they call it? wide appeal, right? They wanted to be as broad based as possible, <laughs> so it ends up sounding like nothing. Like you're talking about vague emotions and feelings, and like the things that we hey, no, the things that we all like, yeah, you know, and and when you have like a very specific, especially hyper specific experience like that, that's awesome because it 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 immediately makes it unique and interesting. And it's it's, it's, memorable. it's funny to hear you say that because I a habit I have that I. I don't think it's a bad habit, but as I said, I'm, uh, when I'm writing a lyric, my goal is to write something that nobody else has written before, yeah. um, but that's still true. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's not just being weird for weirdness's sake. It's trying to communicate something and a you know that uh, a feeling that you, that you. My favorite thing when I'm reading a novel is you read a sentence and you're like, I've never thought it that way before, but that's a thing I knew. Um, I didn't know I knew it until I read that sentence, yeah. but like you recognize it. That's, that's, you know, that's my goal for every lyric. Uh, and a habit that I have is while still trying to accomplish that is I frequently invoke everybody. Uh, I will say everybody X or everybody Y um, because I'm, I'm convinced that this feeling I'm talking about is universal, even when it sounds like, oh, this is just a random thought that I had because I had too many edibles the other night. <laughs> but it, but the thing is, even though you're, uh, trying to reach for universality, there is a specificity to it that, that yeah. I think makes it uniquely you. Whereas when I, when I talk about the um, the songwriting company uh, sort of agenda, it's it's about nothing. It's just it's, it's about nothing. It's there to like fill the space to be a thing that is just you know uh, inoffensive. 
like to, yeah. to appeal to as many people as possible, which I find very uh, offensive it, personally. But and interestingly, the the not to jump too far into the future, but you know, we we fan funded the last record and we're fan funding the next record that's going to come out next year. Uh, and one of the ways we're doing it, sort of, you know, the, the high ticket items in our Indiegogo campaigns, the last time around was you could buy a verse about yourself in a song we were going to write. I, I, uh, you are jumping ahead. I was very excited to get to this, but we can talk about this now because I think it's okay. Well, it's, I'm, I'm bringing it up now because it relates to, to what, what we're, no, talking we're talking about. about and, it. Yeah, and so, yeah, and yeah, we had so it. much fun writing that song uh, that it at, at a certain point, um, you know, and, and so many people bought verses, the song goes on forever. There's like, I had to write like 10 verses for the song. I'm like, it's this Dylan thing all of a sudden. Uh, and as Jay, as Jay, I was at Jay's house and, and he had this, this riff and this melody uh, and I had these lyrics. And so we start working it out um, and we really liked the result, right? And he looked at me and he goes, can we use this for a real song? I was like, what are you talking about? This is a real song. Yeah. It's like, just because we're singing about actual real people yeah. and we're only singing about them because they each paid us $500. Yeah. But the goal here is to create a too much joy song. Like, who cares? It, we could, if we, I would have been writing, you know, I would have, again, I would have eaten an edible and watched some like Val Luton horror movie from the, from the thirties <laughs> or forties sure. uh, and written a song based on that. Like, how is that any more valid than a song based on the experiences of one of our actual fans? Like, they're the same. And so they're, we're doing the same thing this time around, where now people can buy an entirely original song uh, if they donate $1,000. And I didn't think anybody was going to do it, and now I have 17 songs to write. Um, so I'm sort of pissed I gave myself all this homework. But the band's <laughs> been having these conversations about it. It's like, these. the goal is these need to be indistinguishable from any other Too Much Joy song. They happen yeah. to be about patrons of the arts who are funding the record and gave us money to do so. And I wouldn't have written it, I wouldn't have known to write it if you know they didn't give me the money and I sent them a questionnaire and said, what do you want the song to be about? You know, And tell me all these things about your lives and stuff. Um, but try it, it, the, Sandy said it when we were when we were having this discussion, we're like, we're treating these like any other Too Much Joy song. And he said, yeah. He goes, I love this idea of trying to find the universal in the specific. Yeah, I, and I, you know, again, uh, one of the things I think so fascinating about that, uh, other than everything, is that uh, it re <laughs> it really focuses on the crowd part instead of the funding part. Like I think everyone yeah. focuses on the funding part, which is vital to the the making of a thing. But it really is, uh, you know, it's almost, you know, it's like there's like the Burroughs cut up method and stuff like that, right? But I, I, there's just not a, there's not a lot of people willing to, to kind of take that leap of faith. But then again, think about like, who are the people that are going to be doing this? They're probably people that are fans of your music that mm -hmm. like, you know, know your voice and everyone's kind of, you know, wanting, wanting it to succeed. So no one's going to try to like, you know, throw you too much of a boomerang. Well, one would hope <laughs> like maybe they will. I don't know, but it's, it's <laughs> such a bizarre modern thing. Like it's, it's such a, like you couldn't have done this even 10 years ago. You couldn't have been able to do it. Like you would, you would have like some version of it. that would be like, you know, prototypical of it, but like, yeah, this, this has well, to that, happen kind of now. Yeah. I mean, not, not to get super pretentious, but you know, you can go to any museum in the world and see amazing portraits that were commissioned Absolutely, by, you yeah. know, name world famous, like historically famous artists. It's not a, it's not a thing to be ashamed of. I don't think it's, it, you should only be ashamed of it if you're just doing it as a money grab and you're like, Oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to bang this one out, you know, with an acoustic guitar and, you know, we'll bang on a can. Um, <laughs> fuck that. And I will say, I, I just said this yesterday, actually, the, when Warner Brothers gave us one hundred fifty thousand dollars, 
it didn't make me think like, oh, I've got to live up to this now. It yeah. made me think, of course, I, of course they gave me $150,000. Yeah. We are geniuses. Yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah. When, a, when an individual <laughs> fan gives me $500 or $1,000 to yeah. write a song about them, I'm like, holy shit, this better be good. I cannot fail here. It I stakes. have to do right by them. It, I never felt that way with when I was spending Warner Brothers money. It, 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 yeah, it, it stakes in a very uh, real and intrinsic way. And, yeah. that's, and I've seen... I've seen other people try it and it always it it always seems to be there's a a stutter step right before the finish line of like really committing to it as like the thing. It's like, "Oh, we made like oh, but if this is over in like, you know, the B-sides ghetto over here or uh <laughs> you know, it, it it's sort of like asterisks in some way." And the fact that you guys just nope, we're doing it. We're, we're diving into it. it. It just it's it's such a fantastic experiment that like even just not just as a songwriter, but as a as a music fan, is like wow, what a what a bizarre box to put yourself in. But I bet that's going to turn out really freaking cool. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, any art is is it's like haiku. You give yourself constraints, and you come up with something you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, it's like. I mean, it's why I love you know dopey rhymes. Uh, right. To me, <laughs> a rhyme. You know, the, I, I love rhymes. I love when I love when they're quote unquote clever. Um, but the rhyme itself isn't the point. The rhyme is a way to distract uh, your ego and your superego. It gives it a puzzle to solve. Um, and while it's distracted, your subconscious just vomits up shit you never would have let yourself say otherwise. Um, so th- th- this is similar to that, to my mind. And I, I like the conventions of a pop song, writing a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, yeah. um, and making the chorus anthemic and rhymey. Uh, you know, you're giving yourself parameters that you have to work within and you're trying to do new stuff within those parameters it's it's a really to me it's a really really invigorating challenge yeah absolutely and i mean i'm just thinking back to when uh for myself like you know sometimes when i'm you know writing stuff like the craziest like turn of phrase will come out of uh like an impassioned rant about something and then like i'll just you know this and then you're kind of reaching the crescendo of it and someone's like oh you know blah 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 that's pretty good i'm like oh yeah let me write that down. Okay, cool. Right on. And again, like you said, like it's it's not that it's like I don't buy the it's work, right? I don't buy the idea that it's all divine inspiration, this yeah. and that, et cetera, et cetera. It's but there's something to be safe for knowing how to get out of your own way. Yeah, and and uh, and it's interesting you say like a, a a line will pop out of a rant because what I'm finding with these <laughs> these sort of patron of the art songs is I just start having conversations with the person over email. Like I send them a questionnaire and they send me stuff back and then I ask them some follow-up questions. And often the initial stuff they give me, it's not that it's unusable, but there's no real, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting a spark from it. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. not till I'm having the conversation with them that something will pop out and I'll write and I'll instantly sure. write back. Yeah. I'll say, you just gave me the title of your song. Uh, like That's someone awesome. was, uh, I, Maybe I shouldn't give this away. No, oh, what the fuck? I'll give it away. One of the songs that I just completed, one of these fan lyrics, uh, as we were having this conversation, I was like, well, how do people describe you? And she says, oh, well, you know, she asked in a in a group text message uh, for people to describe her. And one of her friends said, well, you know, you're a dick, pun- you're a dick punching foe of the patriarchy. I'm like, there's the title. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's yeah. a too much joy song. Dick yeah. fucking foe, <laughs> dick, dick punching foe of the patriarchy. Yes. I am writing that song. But you may or may not like it. Uh, but that's the song I'm writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop the boat. It's it's you know yeah. we we found land. <laughs> no, that and and harkening back to the earlier point because I think that well for some reason it seemed like crowdfunding was a really contentious topic for a lot of years and then that just sort of disappeared as crowdfunding became synonymous for the lack of a healthcare system in this country. Um, 
Uh, but you know, I think about you know the 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 um. Like the House of Medici, like you know, the Italian families, like things like that. I mean, this is not like a new concept. Like it's just the... literally on our Indiegogo page that, you know, you have to put up a little image for each perk. They call them yeah. perks. These perks, it's just a picture of Medici. Oh, oh really? Is there really? You know, I, I might have like subconsciously seen that. And, <laughs> but anyway, whatever. But, but I, mean, I, 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 I feel no, you know, I, I don't think anyone should feel shame about this stuff. I mean, you know, most indie bands in, in my genre anyway, they support themselves on the road from the merch table. Yeah. Right. And when and we were doing that back in like 87, 88, after a show, we would we were really, really aggressive about hawking our T-shirts, not just from the stage, but like literally after the show, particularly when we were the opening band, we would go from person to person with the shirts draped over our arms, haranguing them to buy the shirts. <laughs> uh, so we've been we've been fan funded from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's slightly less aggressive now. But, you know, <laughs> it's just, you got to put gas in the gas tank, man. You got to got to get to the next place. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah, okay. So, so, and I, I wanna, I wanna get more into that record too, but I also don't want to completely abandon. Um, we can, yeah, Sergio we can go, past. we can rewind. So, how do you? So, uh, in the looking back at, at the history of it, like, like serial killers, you know, like ninety one. Jesus Christ! I mean, that's like, <laughs> I'm an old man. <laughs> uh, back in my day, uh, um, yeah. I mean, you went for. You went for it production-wise. It wasn't banned in a room. Like, it was, um, I mean, glossy may not be the wrong, the right word, but it was, it, it was, uh, it, it did have some, it had corners rounded off, but I think it presented itself well. Did you, did you feel that it was the type of record that you wanted to make? Oh, God, yeah. It was, it was as, as I would say, I, I think there's a, there's a couple songs on there. Um, Susquehanna Hat Company, King of Beers, and Longhaired Guys from England are, are the three that jump out at me. Yeah. That because we spent so much of the budget on Crush Story, yeah. um, they got banged out more, you know, like we would have on an alias release, right? Or, or like we would today. <laughs> um, but I think it's a good, on balance, I think it's a good journey through uh, both the live experience and the, you know, the music we hear in our heads. Well, I think it came. It's, it think it seems like it came from, you know, you guys lived experience too, and and where you had been at that time, and then part of like you know the, the grinding it out, uh, indie rock world, but also with aspirations to you know do something big and cool. You know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, and I mean, the thing is, I would say like even Green Eggs and Crack, though it didn't come out this way, that was our even back then we were attempting. To yeah. do like with with the tools that we had with available, the tools you to us, had, we were trying to make the most beautiful sounding music we possibly could. We just weren't very good at it yet. Right, right. Um, so once we had professional help and a professional budget, and we're recording in like these beautiful, you know, gigantic rooms where the drums just sound amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were able to actually get closer to the the ideal that we had in our heads. I, and if if I may say, as someone who was, uh, you know, I. I lived in Oakland far longer, but I was born and raised in Modesto, California. Uh, Thanksgiving in Reno, I was like, oh, these guys. <laughs> that that that's that's a like a like a stuck in Lodi sort of title of, of like if you know, you know. True story. <laughs> Mo- or mostly true story. Well, true enough. True enough. True enough. Yeah. Uh, and then you make um so after that's mutiny. And you make like yeah. the goth record. 
<laughs> you mean, like... <laughs> so mutiny the, again we did the same thing we, we interviewed a bunch of producers and most of them said just set up the you know mics in a room and capture you live or like next uh and then we met william whitman bill whitman uh and he you know he, he'd worked on Cindy lauper's record he'd produced some records for the fix uh in the outfield uh and uh, so he was a little bit more commercially minded than, you know, we maybe were. Uh, but when we had lunch with him, he said two things that sort of sealed the deal. Like we didn't tell him at that lunch, but we knew like the second he left the room, we're like, that's the guy. Yeah. Uh, he, he said, we were sort of complaining about how all these producers said, we just want to capture you live. He goes, well, no, no, no. He goes, the effect should be as though the band is playing live, but you, you, you might take, you know, he goes, you're doing overdubs. You're, you know, you're doing <laughs> dozens of takes. Uh, he goes, you produce it. Um, but the goal is to have the same energy as a live performance, but you would never just set up live. Like, so that was thing number one that they got him the gig. And thing number yeah. two was, you know, we're talking about our influences. And at a certain point, he, he just he stops us. He goes, you know, you guys keep saying the clash, but I really hear the who, which is who the clash were trying to be anyway. We're like, okay, he just compared us to the who yeah, and yeah, the clash yeah, yeah, yeah. in the same sense. <laughs> he got the job. You're saying all the right things, man. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh did did, did you grow him for any like uh Tony Lewis or uh, John Spink stories or anything along those lines? <laughs> Not, I mean they, they they come out naturally. Right, you don't have to grow. Uh, yeah, but that one that one, that one was that one was a, 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 a for budget reasons we recorded it in New York so we didn't have to, you know, spend any of the budget lodging ourselves because we were all living in Manhattan at the time. Yeah. Uh and uh so we would literally just walk to work every day, um, which was not which was not our ideal. Like we prefer leaving home and just going somewhere and saying, "This is all we're doing. This is literally all we're doing." Being in a place um, and doing a thing, yeah, yeah. But we recorded it at at Messina Studios, and the engineer was Jeff Daking, um, who had been the drummer in the Blues Magoos. Uh, and it was just an amazing studio and he's an amazing guy and he had great stories about like you know flying on you know, like they toured with the who so he had stories about the who tripping on the plane like as they're flying from gig to gig like oh this is this is amazing yeah. and, the, and the funny thing was he had these young daughters I, I, you know they were like 14 15 something like that um and so we're sitting here worshiping their dad because he has this amazing history they thought he was the biggest dork in the world and they thought the too much joy guys were super cool. We're like, no, awesome. you don't understand. Your dad is awesome. I, I go back to a friend of mine saw Tom Waits and his family at the airport and like, you know, it's fucking, it's Tom Waits. Right. And then like, he's trying to, uh, you know, tell his kid about something and tell a joke or something. And the, and the kid just like comically like rolls his eyes. And I'm like, dad, <laughs> It's like yeah, even Tom Waits gets uh, gets no sold by his by his by his kids, and it's yep, you just ways. you have to accept it. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, so I was thinking about it, and from terms of just your articulated vision as an album, like I I almost think that that might be the strongest album uh, for Too Much Joy, but it's it's kind of dense. Like it, there's there's a you know there's no there, there's no goofy hook to bring people in as as much on that one, and. At least from from the outside perspective. I mean, were you guys, you know, it's not like you were listening to reviewers or whatever, but were you, were you taking that into account? Were you just trying to make a different kind of record? Were you just writing different kinds no, of songs? There, honestly, the, I would say there are, on Serial Killers, there's one song that uh, we didn't record for Serial Killers because our A&R guy convinced us not to. And he was, he, he, and he wasn't the only one. There were plenty of people through the years saying drop the comedy drop the comedy right. stop being funny uh to which i would always say 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes we feel like being funny, we're going to be funny. Sometimes we feel like being sad, we're going to be sad. Like, we're going to make whatever art we want to make. Uh, and I would just say that batch of lyrics, that's just where my head was at the time. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, Sort of Haunted House is, that's a, I think that's a classic Too Much Joy number. It's, and it's also, you know, there, there's depth to it. There, there, again, in, in that grand tradition of it being like, it's not just about like the one thing, but it's kind of about the one thing. And then it's sort of like self-referential about being about the one thing too. But That, that was my <laughs> attempt to write a song that Johnny Cash could sing. Really? Wow. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't okay. say the arrangement is a Johnny Cash arrangement, but the lyric is, I wrote it for Johnny Cash. I'm going to think about that song very differently next time I hear it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so... At this point, it's it's uh it's like what ninety two, right? Like the world has changed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, at this point, you know, it's like okay, so that's um fourth record, right? For uh yeah, fourth fourth record. You guys know who you are. You got all these other bands that you know are in a similar situation. You also have bands that are just kind of still trying to figure it out, and they're trying to figure it out maybe on like these bigger stages and things like that. Was it as crazy as it seemed? to someone who lived in Modesto, California and saw mostly through the eyes of MTV. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would say, yeah, the, the, at least initially the, the, you know, we, we, we were at a point where we had moved from, you know, we, we could sell out clubs pretty much across the country, you know, depending on the city, 200 to 500 seaters. And we'd started opening for uh, acts that couldn't sell out theaters on my own. And so we'd bring in the, you know, the 500 seats they needed to fill. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of shenanigans, um, you know, the sort of all the fun touring rock and roll stuff. And, and Jay and I used to, you know, we'd, we'd read interviews in, in Rolling Stone with Tom Petty, like, you know, and people like that talking about what a grind the road is. And we'd just look at each other and go, what is he talking about? <laughs> Being on tour is the fucking best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you pull into town, you're the, everybody's happy to see you yeah. because you're something new. You're something different from their day-to-day -day lives. You're the party. Uh, People, you know, you get to the club, dinner's free, booze is free. Uh, people invite you back to their houses afterwards. They make you breakfast the next day. They give you drugs. Uh, and you leave town before anyone has enough time to realize what assholes you are, right? <laughs> so everybody's always happy to see you. It's it's wonderful. We loved it. Um, so, yeah, that stuff was great. But sadly, our A&R our &R guy died just before the record came out. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of those things where, you know, it was our second official record on Warner Brothers. First single didn't uh, 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 connect on radio. Donna Everywhere did really, really well, but then yeah. the follow-up didn't. Uh, and Irving Azoff was like, he literally shook my hand and said, move on to the next one. I was like, no, no, we really want you. We made a video for In Perpetuity. We want to push this one. He's like, no, go make the next one. Uh, and we're like, shit, Irving wants us to make the next one. And then like, you know, six weeks later, he dropped us. Wow. Yeah. But everything, every, the thing is, everything had changed. That year, yeah. we were driving around on tour and all of a sudden, Smells Like Teen Spirit is being played on every alternative station as we're pulling into town. And it literally changed the business we were in. So all of a sudden, our unit, the, no, the units we were shifting, which used to be like, what was expected for a band of our ilk was no longer what a band of our ilk was expected to do. Now you had to go platinum. <laughs> right. Right. And then there's that pressure of, of the, um, it's like the, um, uh, uh, keeping up with the Joneses kind of mindset, right. Of, of the having to, 
be your unit doing your thing, but see all this other stuff happening around you. It's hard. It's hard not to at least apply internal pressure. I would. I would imagine of some kind of like, oh well, I thought this is as good as that, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. Does it matter? Uh, or were you just guys? Were you guys just running your own race at that point? We were. I mean, I would say it, it's. It's. I don't want to. I don't want to state this too starkly. But it is absolutely the case. It's a very hard phenomenon to avoid, at least in my experience, uh, living up to other people's expectations. Yeah. So there was a point when we were in the studio, not on Mutiny, it was after that, um, but we were recording and you know we were listening to a playback of a mix we'd just done and somebody wanted to A-B it with uh, whatever, I can't even remember what the song was, but whatever, like a top 40 alternative hit was sure, of the sure. day. And I just remember in that moment going, what happened? What happened? How did we get here? We never used to give a shit about something like yeah. that. We were always just doing our own thing. Um, and it's not like, you know, it totally overtook us or anything, but that was a worrisome signal to me that other people's opinions were starting to matter way more than they ever had before. Right. And all, you know, and, and, and it, it's funny, but the, a couple of years later, Green Day would change everything again, again, yeah. uh, and start making music like we'd been making four years before. Um, but in that brief period, when you know, what, from "Smells Like Teen Spirit" on, all of a sudden, being a pretty funny melodic uh, power pop band uh, with a little bit of a garage rock edge uh, just didn't really fit in on the radio stations that used to be playing us. Yeah, yeah, and it was crazy because yeah, it was people wanting like the harder, weirder stuff. Yeah. Which is really wild to think about now, but that was that was a thing. That was absolutely. It was. It just everything got really, really dark and sludgy, and yeah. we are not. We're a lot of things. We are not dark and sludgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Be, be hard sell to, to. I'm really a tortured artist. Here's my grunge album. You know. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that that's ill fitting. <laughs> Uh, so then, so so talk me through uh, the rest the rest of the '90s uh, for too much joy. So th- so we get dropped, and uh, again, like I said, we weren't as uh, unnaive as we thought we were. Uh, when we were on Giant, so many people uh, in the business would come backstage or take us out to lunch and say, "Hey, when you're done with them, come over to us." Yeah. Uh, and giant dropped us and so we instantly call up all those people were like hey we're free yeah like do you want to put out our next record we were damaged goods and it was really shocking in a way it should not have been shocking to me that all these people that had you know blown all this smoke up my ass i thought they meant it at the time um but all of a sudden they're like they're not returning our phone calls so there was four really i wouldn't say dark years but four long years of just shopping the songs we had trying to find a home for them uh, and ironically, we, we sort of did the Wilco thing before Wilco because we ended up getting signed. So it took four years, but four years later, we got re-signed to Warner uh, on a different side of the corporate period, pyramid. So we got signed by Jack Holtzman at Discovery Records, which had formerly been a, a, a jazz label. And Time Warner said like, oh, okay, like we'll give it to Jack Holtzman, who famously founded Electra Records, uh, and we'll let him turn it into a rock label. We were one of the first rock bands he signed at Discovery. Um, and so, you know, we were... We'd moved from Warner Brothers to Time, you know, Time Warner, but they were all owned at the tip top of the corporate structure by the same entity. Right. Uh, Cute Fugazi song, right? <laughs> uh, so we called the record finally just because it had taken so fucking long. Yeah. To come out. And we had so many songs. There were the thing is, we had so many songs over the course of the four years that figuring out which one should be on the record was was a bit of a challenge because they didn't all go together. So we left one of the best songs we'd ever written and like one of the poppiest and 
to my mind, most commercial sounding off the record uh, called Gods Make Love, just because it didn't fit with the punky or poppy or yeah. stuff that uh, that was that made up the rest of the album. Drummer was very, very mad at us. He's like, guys, just put it on. It's a great song. Like, nah, it doesn't fit. Well, and that's, you know, having the vision you know, sometimes it means making sacrifices like that, and not not everyone's always going to be on board. Uh, no, you know, it's, it's, it's and and at that and and during that four year period, uh, Sandy, the original bass player, had left the band and gone and gotten a, a straight job, yeah. uh, ironically at, at Atlantic Records, um, and so we had we didn't know what we were going to do, uh, but we had this college gig down in Maryland coming up, and the, you know, back in the day anyway, college gigs were paydays, so like yeah, you, know, you might. Yeah. Make, you know, you might make five hundred dollars uh, at a club, and you'd make five thousand dollars. And again, this is like you know, nineteen ninety three dollars right. uh, playing a playing some university. Uh, and so we couldn't miss the show, um, but it was coming up really fast. So we just asked Bill, the the guy who produced Mutiny, because he knew all the songs. We're like, hey, uh, and he'd been uh, when we were touring on Mutiny, when we were passing through a town he was in, he'd get up on stage and play guitar with us a little bit. We're like, hey, you know the songs? Could you play bass on them? Uh, and he's like, sure. So we originally, it was just like a fill-in thing, um, but it really clicked. And so he joined the band. Uh, producer Mutiny became the replacement bass player. Yeah. Uh, and so he produced finally and was the bass player on finally. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it, it's a long time to be a band in general, let alone through these epochs of time that have... Um, yeah. And then, and the, and the thing, the, the, and then an interesting thing happened. And so, you know, we'd all gotten married. Uh, I'd had a kid. Um, many of us had had kids at that point. And uh, for the longest time, you know, my, my wife certainly had the feeling that the band came first and everything else, you know, all family stuff came after that. Obviously, having a daughter changes that. Um, changes and your, hopefully changes your priorities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I and the thing is, we had met in San Francisco. Alias had been based in San Francisco and she moved to New York because that's where the band was based. So we were living in New York and but we always wanted to move back to California. And so literally every year from like 1988 from 89 uh, to 96, I kept saying, you know, this time next year, either the band will have broken up or will have broken through. And in either case, we'll be able to move to California. <laughs> and after about five or six years of that, I finally realized neither thing was ever going to happen. We weren't going to break up and we weren't going to break through. Uh, so we're like, you know what? It's time to just put the family first. We will move to California and whatever happens to the band happens to the band. Um, so after finally and touring on finally, we, we uh, bought a house out here in Oakland and, and moved here. Um, and the band, you know, we never, we didn't break up. We just really, we just sort of slowed down. And so I think we played our last show um, for a while in 1996 or seven. Um, yeah, in 97, we put out a, a sort of a Gods and Sods, a, an Odds and Sods compilation right. that we called Gods, Gods and Sods. Sods yeah. Gods make love on it. Um, and we were touring on that. Uh, and we didn't know it was our last show. It was some like street fair in San Diego. I, although I think we then we played a club gig that night. Um, and we didn't know we weren't going to tour again after that. Yeah. Uh, but basically stuff just changed and uh, we just kind of slowed down. And so we'd get together and record, um, but it was sort of non-goal oriented writing and recording. Uh, and we'd put up out like random digital singles or record store yeah. day things here and there. 
Um, but we didn't really, you know, we didn't play a show again for 10 years. Uh, and we only did that as, you know, the drummer's sister convinced us to get back together uh, for a gig uh, to celebrate his retirement for the NYPD. So we did a show in New York in 2007, which was, which became the last show we played. We thought we were going to do some shows last year uh, for the 30th anniversary yeah. of Serial Killers, but then obviously pandemic. Made Something happened. Possible. Yeah, exactly. There, there was a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. something uh, so we didn't we didn't and we always said like we're not broken up like we didn't want to break up because if you break up and then you and then you feel like making music again you look like the who like i just i just saw dr dog dr dogger on their farewell tour but I, i'm calling it their first final tour uh, i'm sure you know <laughs> yeah, look, what, look what lcd sound system did yeah, uh, yeah and i just think that's always lame when you say you're done and then you come back yeah, yeah so we never said we were done um we didn't know if we were going to come back uh, but it wasn't until the pandemic that we actually said, fuck, we've got yeah. an album in us. Yeah, I, I call it the reunion industrial complex uh, quite <laughs> often because I, I have set, uh, such utter disdain for it. And also, I mean, like, whatever. Someone wants, someone wants to make a living, people want to see the songs. Hey, great. Yeah. That's good for you. But I have, I, I'm more fascinated by the bands that continue to do it and that, that you know, slow down maybe, but don't stop. And, and that, that always was interesting to me. Uh, about you guys is that there wasn't anything like definitive. Sort of like, there wasn't that like, oh no, it's over, you know, like closed chapter at all. And uh, oh, and just as an aside, uh, a few years back, <laughs> the We Are the Clash thing that I I have often used that record, uh, the the, the uh, quote unquote Clash record, <laughs> as a point of reference so many times uh, for just like hang it up. Guys, <laughs> and the uh, absolute genius of having a song like "We Are the Clash" done by someone that is in fact not the Clash as well. Like it's 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 such a too much joy thing to do. And but then of course to back it up with "We Are Not the Clash" as well. Oh well, yeah, and that, it was sort of like that was a you know that's the way a lot of our best stuff comes about. It, there's sort of a afterthought or I mean, it's like the two live crew thing. Somebody just says like, Oh, we should do this. Yeah. And everyone goes, Oh yeah. So w the way that came about was there was a label called Cro Cro crooked beat records was putting together a tribute to cut the crap, the shittiest clash album. It's so, uh, bad. it's so for, it's, it's, it's like, I, I was like, you know, maybe I should give this another listen. See if, it, if I still think it's bad. No, wow. it's really bad. It's, I, I was I was a college radio DJ when it came out. It came out the same week, uh, the same day as Big Audio Dynamite's debut, and I remember you know and I was like I was a Joe guy, not a Mick guy. Yeah. Um, so I did during my shift that night. I was like, where I hadn't heard either of them. I just saw them in the in the queue at the radio station. So I was like, okay, we're gonna play. We're gonna put them head to head. Like I'm pretty sure Joe will win. Uh, and so I played like one track of one and one track of the other. And I think well before I got to the end of side one, I was like this match is over. <laughs> Joe is not winning. <laughs> Big Audio Dynamite yeah. is beating the Clash. I did not expect that. Um, but it, so it was sort of, it was a perverse idea, which in itself is appealing to too much joy to do a tribute record to the, the best band's worst record. Uh, so as soon as <laughs> I heard about it and we got invited to participate, I was like, we'll do it if we can do We Are The Clash. Um, because it's the shittiest song on their shittiest record. <laughs> It's a shining and, city of failure. It's so bad. Yeah. yeah. And we had, we had, and, 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 and we actually almost, you know, a, 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 I forget which album, but We Are the Clash was one of the possible titles for one of our albums at one point. You know, it was just somebody's right. stoned idea that made us laugh for five minutes. And then the next morning, we we're like, oh, no, that would wear out. Um, but when we had the opportunity to do the song, we we're like, okay, we'll do it. 
And we were all, it's very rare for us all to be in the same city at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, But just circumstances meant all five of us were actually going to be in New York at the same time. So we went into the loft in Bronxville, New York, the studio where we recorded Green Eggs and Crack. Uh, We're like, yeah, we'll just hang out with Al Hamburger, our original producer, and and we'll we'll bang this out. And on the plane on my way to New York, uh, where I was flying there for business, but I was like, hey, I'm going to be there. If you guys are going to be there, let's, let's bang out the song. On the plane, I was like, but we aren't the clash. I was like, Oh, that sounds like a song title. Let's see. Let's see what comes out of that. And so I wrote the lyric and I literally showed up in the studio with this lyric. And I said, guys, I wrote this on the plane. Maybe this could be the B side. Uh, And so, you know, we wrote the song in like a half hour and recorded it in like two hours. That's awesome. So that was, that was that, I because it because it capstones very well like it, it's a good it's a good a b set and it's a perfect uh usage of the the classic seven inch single as a format yeah. as well like i mean I, I, again you'll have to turn the comp back on myself but you know one of my old bands had a single called plausibly wild backed with wildly plausible <laughs> excellent and it's just, it's from that school of uh palindromic uh smart assery and uh, you know I, I love that well I love I, I, one of my favorite examples of the form is when Nick Lowe put out an EP called Bowie without the without the E. Right. So when we put out Lowe, Lowe put out Bowie. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. That's good. Uh, okay, so then let's we we already talked a little bit about it, but let's talk about mistakes were made. I, I mean, for me, that opening track is like classic like cheap trick style just like banger power pop and, and like uh, to me that 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 was like a statement of tent of intent for that record uh yeah you, i i agree you'd be surprised like the debate within the band about whether or not to open with that was mm-hmm. rather fierce and i was like i, really? I yeah I, I i find it in my old age i become more of a stubborn jerk uh i used to go <laughs> along to get along and now i'm much more no this is the way it has to be um, I would not let that go. Like this is so it absolutely 100% is the opening track. Absolutely. It has to be the opening track. I am brooking no dissent on this. Uh, I took a lot of lobbying to get three votes on my side. Um, but eventually I did. And was that like, like what was it? So what was the writing for this uh, record? Like, I mean, it was there. So remote- that, that that's what was so weird. I mean, like, again, we had no plans to make a record and sort of the, the fact that mistakes were made exists. I, I blame it's Bandcamp's fault because when the lockdown first happened and all of a sudden nobody could tour, Bandcamp started doing this first Fridays thing yep. where, you know, uh, the first Friday of every month, 100% of all proceeds go to the band. They don't take their commission. Uh, and I saw it happen the first month and I saw everybody raving and tweeting about it. I was like, oh, we should get something together for the next month. So I just took like We Are The Clash and a bunch of record store day things that had only ever been vinyl only and I put them up on Bandcamp. So they were available. They weren't new, but they were available for the first time. Right. Um, and then, you know, we tweeted it out on the first Friday. I frankly was stunned how many people still gave a shit about us. I was not expecting that at all. Um, and it was such a... You know, it's nice when people care. Uh, and so Sandy, the bass player, the original bass player, said, hey, you know, maybe we should uh, try to have a new song for the next First Friday. Let's yeah. just set that as a challenge. Right, right. Uh, he had a riff he'd been working on. I had a spray lyric. Like, you know, even when even when the band's not recording, you don't stop writing. So yeah. I've always got all these random bits and pieces of lyrics lying around. Um, so he had a riff. I sent him the lyrics. He sent it to the, uh, you know, he shared his demo with everybody else. Um Jay and Bill sort of tweaked it a little bit. Actually, we wound up with sort of two competing versions because 
Jay and Bill wrote their own music and Sandy had his own music. So we're like, well, we'll just record them both and put them. That'll be the B side. New Memories Part One and New Memories Part Two. Because <laughs> exactly. the lyric, there were too many verses to fit in either version of the song. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to break the lyric across two different arrangements. Yeah, yeah. Why um, not? <laughs> uh, so we did that, and as they were going, and you know, we were all separated, uh, but um, the they were able to go into a studio in New York to lay down the bass and drums. And as Sandy and Tommy were going into the studio to do that, I said, hey, while you're there, you know, there's this old song um, that I always loved that we never recorded. And I, you know, I don't know if this is the reason. It was it was a song we could have recorded for Mutiny. It was called Snow Day, um, but it was punk poppy. And it, again, like, so you had asked this before and I'd forgotten about this. There were some jokey punk poppy songs lying around for Mutiny. And it just like they didn't, we never never even occurred to us to record it. I think maybe because we'd written it too early in the cycle. So by the time we got around to recording, like, you know, it was nine months old and we didn't like it anymore. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But I was like, it, I always regretted never recording that. Why don't you see if you can bang that one out while you're there? And so we had this three track single for, I think it was June's first Friday. Um, and the reaction to that was even bigger than the reaction to the random stuff we put up the month before. And we're like, you know what? Let, if we do this for the rest of the year, write one new song and we and record one old song that we you know that's written but never officially got recorded we'll have an actual album by the end of the year um so we did it again uh the we we did a new song called pong in july and backed it up with an old song called hey berlin uh and we're like let's just do this like every month we'll write two new songs and then eventually we and and, and we'll, we didn't know if we were going to have an album that was good or not yeah. uh but we're like if we like the results we'll put it out and the thing is we got so excited doing it uh we decided to put up a fan funding campaign and we're like hey you know, if, if we get enough money we'll do this and, and if we like the songs um and again people went uh, you know i think we asked for five thousand dollars and we got twenty thousand yeah um so that was encouraging uh so but the writing process was different than we'd ever done before like we had never ever written separately like somebody might yeah. come to rehearsal with a riff um or a little bit of a melody but we we always wrote as a unit um and obviously the pandemic made that and just distance uh made that impossible so even if we'd had the wherewithal to get ourselves all in the same room it was physically impossible so more than any other album mistakes were made i can you know i know when i listen to it oh that's a sandy song that's a jay song that's a bill song that it's all tim lyrics but you know so there, there's there's a unifying thread but that's not a way we'd ever written before um and so for this next one we are making a concerted effort to uh it's hard to get all five of us in a room at the same time but whenever three or four of us can be uh we write that way so it's it's it, the next one will be more collaborative i think it came out really well i, I i'm pleased with the results i don't think you know, I don't think it's like a white album where it's like, oh, that's obviously a Paul song. And that's obviously a George song. It's not it's not that extreme. But I know and I'm a, I'm a little uncomfortable knowing because it's just not the way we've ever worked before. Well, and if you're writing with the majority of the people, it's like if you have a quorum, then you can you, yeah. you, can, you can, you know, continue on or, or whatever. But no, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't sound like a pastiche. It doesn't sound like, um, you know. I, I I love it. I love them, but it doesn't sound like a guided by voices record or something where it's just like, oh, what's that? Okay, you know, it, it's there's a cohesive through line through it, and uh, I mean, it, it just it sounds like you guys. Sounds like you an, an older you guys, you know, but like you guys. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I was I was I was hyper conscious of the fact that it could suck. 
uh, which is one of the reasons I was advocating for always doing one in one, one old one and one new one, uh, because sort of the tension between those two, like I, I, the new ones sort of up to the new, the old ones up the new ones game. It like made sure. them have some energy to match. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, 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 it made us resist the temptation to just be middle-aged dudes, you know, doing mid-tempo ballads, um, <laughs> right. uh, which is a very easy trap to fall into. Uh, and the new ones, you know, stopped it from just being this nostalgia thing. Uh, so the original plan was it was going to be half and half. Uh, but I think a combination of not having done this for many years and just 2020 sucking so fucking much. Uh, it just unlocked something in us. And before we knew it, we had like 50 songs. Uh, so only three old ones actually made the record. May, may I suggest a song title of middle-aged dudes making mid-tempo ballads? Because that's pretty <laughs> damn good, man. <laughs> that's that's rock solid. <laughs> uh, so Joan Osborne, huh? Oh, Joan Osborne, yeah. So Joan, Bill, uh, I think, engineered and or produced uh, one or more of her records, so he knows her. I actually wrote, I contributed a lyric. Uh, there was one time they were working on something and didn't, didn't end up making a record, but it's a fine song. I really like the song. Uh, so I'd written a lyric for her once that, she, that I have the tape of lying around somewhere. Um, so, like, you know, she's friends with Bill and we know her. Uh, and... Uh, we asked her to sing on the song and she said yes and so she sang on she does she provides some uh harmonies and uh actually they're they're, not, they're more than harmonies it's like a co-lead on some of the verses on a song called uncle watson wants to think yeah it, it's it, it's good and that was it, it was and before i heard it i was like is that a gag or is that oh no it's actually her okay cool right on like uh -huh. it, it occurred it occurred to me that it could go either way you know it'd be like <laughs> That would be a weird thing to, to to pretend, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, commitment to the bit. Who knows? You know, like I. Oh, I mean, featuring Lady Gaga, I could see as a gag. Featuring Joan Osborne, it's like. I'd... But I think featuring Lady Gaga would strain a little bit more credulity. So, like, where Joan Osborne's <laughs> like, well, what is she doing right now? I guess she would pretend, like it. You know, it's... <laughs> there, there's, there's a, there's a place around the corner from me that uh, has a sign that proclaims itself America's oldest pen store. And I'm like, well. <laughs> Okay, maybe, but how could you disprove that? I mean, I guess that's, you know, like no one's, who, first of all, who's going to bother to disprove that? And also it's just, you know, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have, you know, have have a proclamation of something, it may, just, may as well be something very specific, I guess. Sure, right on. Uh, anyway, so th that's, I, 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 I had a thought that the featuring Joan Osborne could be a, a, a America's oldest pen store uh, for too much time. But it, <laughs> no, it, in fact, it, was it's featuring it's Joan a Osborne. True thing. Yeah. I. Uh, Tim, this is great. So uh, the so talk about so this is the new record. Um, the the Indiegogo is done, right? Is it, is it still going, or no, is it about another six weeks? I think. Okay, oh, five okay. weeks maybe. Okay, Four, it's got at least it's got at least a month, a little more than a month to go. Okay. Um. So what we, what we the thing is, we learned a lot about making and marketing music in the twenty first century, uh, which we hadn't really done at an album level before, um, and. The, main lesson was the album makes more sense at the end of the promotion cycle than at the beginning. Uh, right. Because what we found was every, like, you know, you try to get a site to premiere a single, they're like, well, what do you have that's exclusive for me? So everybody yeah. just, there's this content machine. Everybody needs something. Yeah. Uh, so we were sort of discussing that phenomenon and, you know, and they need a video or they need a, an outtake or a B-side or something like a non-album B-side or something like that. 
and so as we were writing these new songs, we, we'd all gotten together in LA, or four of us had gotten together in LA, but was still in New York um, to, to write as a unit and to record as a unit, which we weren't able to do the last time. Um, and as we were banging out some of those songs, uh, we were just discussing how to approach the next one. And I forget whose idea it was, it wasn't mine. Somebody said, let's do a single a month in 2022. I'm like, oh, we've got it. We've definitely got enough material for that. So yeah. let's do that. So uh, that that so that's what we're doing for the Indiegogo campaign. But I, I should be clear, these are not publicly released singles. These are these are donor only singles. So yeah. anyone who contributes to the campaign at any level uh, will get at least two, if not three, new Too Much Joy songs a month throughout the year. Uh, and unlike last time, this record's coming out on a label. Um, so there's a new label that uh, Jay Coyle, an artist manager, and Jefferson Holt, uh, also a famous artist manager, uh, just put together. They just released uh, in the last month or so their first album, which is a DB's anthology. Uh, and I really like those guys, and I really like the approach they're taking with the label, where Jay, he's been an artist manager, and he was telling me, he's like, I'm just so sick of having to do one-off deals all the time, and, you know, for my artists, every time is on a new label, every time we're reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Um, so what they're looking to do is work with bands like us, there's a lot of bands like us, um, that have a larger story to tell, and not just do one-off releases, but do reissues of existing albums, anthologies, and sort of tell that band's, you know, sort of wider story. Right, yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm really excited by that. So what we're doing is uh, the record will come out, you know, at some point in 2022 on Propeller. Uh, and uh, because of that, we had to cap the number of people who can donate to the Indiegogo campaign. So it might end before the two months are up, um, if all the perks get claimed. Um, but the so basically, you know, we worked out with them. We're like, well, we need to pre-sell at least 500 in order to raise the money to make the thing to, exist to in the it. first yeah. place. <laughs> sure, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's, uh, so that, that's what we're doing. And it's, it's, it's invigorating. It's, it's, you know, there's just, like I said before, there's something, even if it's, even just a fan giving me $50, I swear to God, invigorates me in a different way than a major label giving me hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's just, a, it's a different dynamic. And, for me personally, at least at this point in my life, it's I'm pretty sure it's leading to better art. Yeah, I mean, like like we were saying, they build stakes, right? And 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 it's connection. And and God, don't we all need some connection right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it. It's long overdue, uh, most <laughs> on my part. Sorry about that. Um, last thing, the only can question I ever ask folks: you can choose to interpret it however you'd like, but why do you do? What you do oh that, uh, that's that's easy um there's so many different ways to answer that question i um i mean you know it's just to connect with other human beings and uh you know fine i mean it, it's basically it's like putting a radio signal a little beeping radio signal out there a transmitter to find other people like you uh i you know it's not like i'm some marginalized you know class of person you know i'm a upper middle class kid from the suburbs um but i never felt like uh you know my I, I feel like a stranger in my own country i certainly felt like a stranger in my own town the band i formed was with the other you know the other three people i could find uh in my town and the next town over you know that i actually clicked with and that we had the same taste in music and felt the same way about the world and what was right about it and what was wrong about it um and so we've been making music for decades just to find other people like us 
Uh, and in our particular case, it turns out there's not a lot of other people. There aren't enough other people like us to sustain a career on a major label, <laughs> um, but there are enough to fan fun uh, and keep making music for you know 30 or 40 years. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks for thanks for doing this. This was fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll come come back when you when you got this uh, the, this next batch of awesome stuff done. We'll uh, we'll, we'll talk then too. Okay, I'll be happy to. <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Oh, there he goes, Mr. Tim Quirk, tbquirk.com. Uh, that dude is a hell of a writer as well as a hell of a musician, and uh, pretty cool guy. So, uh, too much joy uh, on Indiegogo, Indiegogo.com. There's a new one coming up. And if you haven't, if for whatever reason you were not aware, there is uh, Mistakes Were Made, which is which is great. Um, Mistakes Were Made is on the, you can get the, uh, go to Bandcamp for that, right? Uh, too much joy, Bandcamp.com, I believe. Uh, I will be eagerly awaiting the, uh, <laughs> the next album which hopefully has middle-aged dudes making mid-temple ballads <laughs> uh what are our guy okay so uh yeah let's uh let actually you know what i'm gonna play uh, first song blinding light of love here we go
Too much joy. Maybe you've heard of that one. <laughs> and of course, uh, for that, another too much joy. Oh, another little too much joy number uh, called Blinding Light of Love, which is the ripper, clear best intro song <laughs> for the record that came out last year, which is uh, Mistakes Were Made. Mistakes Were Made. 
Uh, but too much joy, too much joy.bandcamp.com. Go get it. They've got Indiegogo, all that. Uh, Tim Quirk, everybody. Tim Quirk, everybody. That's right. Uh, Tim Quirk, everybody. What a cool guy. We didn't, <laughs> didn't even get into how we originally met, too, which that'll be for next time. That'll be for next time. Um, love that, too. So uh, find that uh, Indiegogo. It's all in the show notes, all that. Go get their stuff at Bandcamp. I think they have one of those. You can buy the whole, the whole Megillah digitally for, for something. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, you get it worse. You get it worse than that. It's a lot of tunes, man. Good value. Anyway, this uh, this show, this show is called Kona New Transportonic Reversal. Thank you very much. For listening to it. This is my farewell transmission. The show airs Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. On Radio Nope, RadioNope.com. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. Archives at ProtonicReversal.com. Always free, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. My voice. Yeah, but if you do like the show and want to support it and get episodes earlier, Patreon.com slash ProtonicReversal, $1 a month. We'll achieve that goal. 50,000 watts of power. Thanks, everyone, uh, sharing the show around, liking, subscribing, all that biz. It all helps people find the show. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. However you get down with it. Thanks for caring. It's appreciated. This microphone turns sound into electricity. Some cool stuff coming up. Stick with it. Can you hear me now? Stay safe out there. Out on Route 128, in the dark and lonely. I take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor.
haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. broadcasting if there's no one there to receive
wants to think So please leave him alone Go and play outside And come back when you're grown Uncle Watson wants to think Can you help him understand Why nothing ever comes Of anything that he's planned
Purify, be purified. Be purified. 